My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Today, my guest on the show is Professor Steve Fuller. Professor Fuller is the author of at least 25 books, including a trilogy relating to the idea of the post or transhuman future. And most recently, his uh, upcoming book is called Nietzschean Meditations, Untimely Thoughts at the Dawn of the Transhuman Age. So, Professor Steve Fuller, welcome to Singularity FM. Well, thank you, Nicola, for having me. Fantastic. I've been looking forward to our conversation because uh, you seem to have a very kind of extensive, luminous knowledge into the sort of philosophy of science and the, the sort of the history of ideas and how they go from one age into another. And with a particularly interesting focus in the last decade or maybe decade and a half on transhumanism. So that's all very relevant, not only to my audience and, and me personally, but also I believe to the time that we live in today. So if I were to ask you to simply introduce yourself in a sentence or two to those of our viewers and listeners who may not be familiar with Steve Fuller, who is Professor Fuller? Okay, well, first of First of all, my training, uh, original training is in history and philosophy of science. Um, and in a way that gives you a sense of kind of where I'm naturally coming from, which you've already kind of indicated. Uh, but uh, over the course of my career, I've developed this field called social epistemology. And that's the thing I'm probably best known for, uh, because I really only started to write seriously about transhumanism, I would say maybe, uh, oh, 10 to 15 years ago, not really much before that, but already in the 1980s, I was known for this thing in social epistemology, which is about the social foundations of knowledge, understood uh, both empirically and normatively. And what that means is I'm interested in the way in which knowledge has developed historically and all the rest of it. Um, but at the same time, I'm also have an eye toward what's the best way to organize knowledge. Okay, who should be the producers of knowledge? What should they know? How should knowledge be distributed? All that kind of stuff. Uh, and that is kind of uh, my, my own research field. And so, you know, as, was, as you indicated, uh, for the last 10, 15 years, I've been working very much specifically on transhumanism as part of a kind of general perspective that I have on these matters, which is that science and technology have been the primary means by which human beings have changed themselves. And when I say change themselves, I also mean in a very fundamental way, redefine themselves. Uh, and in a sense, transhumanism is the latest continuation of that project, which I would say is associated with the European Enlightenment, uh, let's say in the early modern era. So in other words, uh, this is a, a, a mode of thinking that is by no means brand new. I mean, what's brand new or what's newer is the kind of technology side of it. Of course, that's new. But in terms of the kinds of ideas that are animating it, especially a lot of the ideas that people often think of as being science fictional are in fact very deeply rooted in the history of Western culture. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, as a little side note, I love people who are buried in books and you literally, <laughs> <laughs> you literally look like you're buried in books. I, if, if I had like the best sort of 
environment it would be something like like your your office right now at least for a part of the day maybe not because i also love nature but but i love i love books well i'm a dying i'm a di dying species i have to say i, I i'm i'm pretty much the only person uh in my uh, department and probably one of the few in the university even though i'm in a pretty distinguished university that would actually have an office that looks like this <laughs> yeah and and the new generation i don't know what it is about books but especially if it's a book i want to keep you know i always prefer to have the hard copy i just you know i i have the digital copy quite often too but there's something about holding the book and underlining some passages with a marker like i used to do 25 years ago or something and then just going back and flipping through the pages and having it in my hand i don't know well, I do think, I mean, I, there is a point there because I do think in terms of spatial memory, right, the way in which knowledge gets codified, right? So like you read these books and very often uh, you associate the ideas with where you found them in the book, you know, what page, what part of the page even. And it seems to be that kind of spatial memory, which is often, which has been historically very important for codifying knowledge, uh, including things like writing marginal comments, right, in the books. Um, all of that is kind of disappearing now. Right, because with the digital stuff, it, it people don't relate to the text quite in the same way anymore. It loses kind of its spatiality. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. But let me go back to you. Again. Okay, <laughs> are you a sociologist then? Are you a sort of a philosopher with a focus on epistemology, perhaps? Because that's what it looks like to me uh, as a potential. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, I think the thing, you know, another thing about my career, which I think is pretty evident to people who read my stuff, is I'm very interdisciplinary, right? So that, and, and so, and this has been true from the very beginning in that all of my degrees were interdisciplinary. So I have a degree in history and sociology, I have two degrees in history and philosophy of science, and, and, and so I've ranged very widely generally. And the reason why I would say I'm in a sociology department now and have been for the last quarter century, which is maybe two-thirds of my professional career, is because in Britain, where I'm living, um, sociology is a fairly porous subject, you might say. People from lots of different fields get into it, right? It's, it's not quite as professionalized, you might say, as sociology is, let's say, in the United States. Um, and so if I were to move from Britain, let's say, and go back to the United States, which is where I'm from originally, um, I doubt that I would actually be going back to a sociology department, you see? So sociology, though, is a very good environment for me in this country. That's very interesting. And by the way, which part of, tell us a little bit about sort of your journey from the US to the UK. Wh which part of the US are you from? I'm originally from New York City, uh, but I actually, and, and I went to Columbia University, which is in New York City with the Ivy League school in New York. Uh, and then when I left there, I won this university fellowship from Columbia to study at Cambridge. Okay, so this was 1979. Uh, and I did my master's degree there. Um, and, and I was only there for two years at the time, and I came back to the United States, and I did my PhD in history and philosophy of science at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and then I, you know, was working in the United States um, from the mid-80s until um, the early 1990s, and then I was invited to apply for the, uh, the open chair in sociology at the University of Durham in England, and that's when I moved, basically. I, I you know, I, I accepted the invitation to apply, and I got it, and, I, and I'm, I now, I'm now at Warwick University. Uh, but I've stayed in Britain the whole time. And like I say, it's about a little more than two-thirds of my professional career now I've been in the UK. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And then why transhumanism? What happened 15 years ago, roughly, or so, that actually you sort of 
changed your focus or you've refocused your interest from epistemology into like transhumanism. Yes. Yes, because uh, look, I mean, um, my original focus was on trying to understand um, how knowledge is developed and how it's changing. But all along, what's what has interested me is the way it changes our self-understanding, right? So it's not just about the you know the the more and different things that we know about the world, but what it what are like you might say the feedback implications of the ways we know and the sorts of things that we know for the way ways we understand ourselves and how we conduct ourselves in the world, and it seems to me that transhumanism is is extremely focused on this kind of matter, right? I mean, transhumanism has some very strong views about the ways in which science and technology ought to tra transform the way we think about ourselves and ought to transform the way we live, you know, and how long we live and all the rest of it in a very direct kind of way, much, much more explicitly than I would say most even science-friendly philosophies have done in the past. Transhumanism is, is in a sense, uh, you know, that th there's this term that, that, that gets used often pejoratively, scientistic, <laughs> right? The word's Transhumanism is, in a sense, very scientistic, right? Because, in a sense, the science and technology is providing incredibly strong drivers for how human beings should think about the way they ought to live. And so that's that. That's kind of um, so. That's where I make the transition. You might say from the social epistemology into the transhumanism. But there was a more kind of um, you might say a, a more immediate focus. You know, in terms of some, a, a practical thing that happened, and that was. Um, in the year 2006, um, I, I became the, the UK partner for a, a multinational European Union project that was studying the so-called converging technologies agenda. So this was an agenda uh, that the European Union was basically creating kind of an imitation to what was already going on in the United States through the National Science Foundation. And so the idea was to think about, you might say, what would be a grand post-Cold War project for science, because there was a sense in which um, science policy at the national and cross-national level suffered something of a meltdown after the Cold War. Because during the Cold War, as you probably know and or remember even, um, was very much uh, the states, very much focused a lot on science as the engines of progress, and, and, and the scientific community across the board benefited tremendously from this, okay? Um, in fact, it was kind of a golden age for science funding. And, and a lot of the stuff, especially a lot of the stuff having to do with information technology, was very much born from that kind of environment. Silicon Valley wouldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for the Cold War in terms of providing the infrastructure, which then after the Cold War gets devolved, you know, becomes all these companies that we now see in Silicon Valley. Okay. Now, the question for the science policy community um, after the Cold War was what's going to be the next big project? And so um, in 2002, um, the National Science Foundation put out this its own converging technologies document. And in fact, uh, the, the two authors, main authors of this document, um, Rocco and Bainbridge. Bainbridge may be familiar to transhumanists, okay, because he writes a lot on virtual reality, okay? And he was the head of the social informatics unit at the National Science Foundation and the co-author of this very important document. Uh, document. And what the document was basically arguing, and again, the European Union just basically copies this, uh, is that you, you could see on the horizon that there are all of these developments taking place 
uh, many, if not most of them, in the private sector, having to do with developments in nanotechnology, biotechnology, information technology, cognitive science, neuroscience, all these kinds of fields. But they are proceeding rather independently of each other, okay? And so what a science policy initiative could do in this context is in some way to gather them together and channel their energies. In other words, to provide incentives for them to work with each other, to come up with a kind of interdisciplinary project, the goal of which would be to enhance the human condition. Okay? And so this is the transhuman moment going on here, right? Because the idea would be you would explicitly, you'd have science policy explicitly channeling all these emerging sciences, right, in the direction of improving and enhancing, and the word enhancement was used, the human condition. Now, what exactly that meant in practice was interesting. There were two kinds of focuses then. One, and, and, and this was, a, in retrospect, one might find this a little peculiar, but there was this focus on creating immunity to biological warfare. Okay? So the idea of making people more resilient, right? Because there, there was this great thought, you know, that there was going to be a lot of biological warfare, so we're beyond the nuclear era. Okay, uh, and this was really, in a way, being conceptualized before people kind of got the full measure of what the so-called war on terror was going to look like, right? Because we're talking the early 2000s here. And so people were kind of imagining that the next frontier for war was going to be, you know, biotechnological, basically. Yeah, I was doing political science at the time, and uh, exactly that was true, because we were uh, doing a uh, price comparison between nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, and uh, uh, biotech weapons. And of course, nuclears were by far the hardest and most expensive to use. Chemicals were an order of magnitude cheaper. And then biological weapons of mass destruction were the easiest to produce, the cheapest, and etc. Exactly. So they were considered to be the most, the highest dangers and the most likely ones to be used. Well, that's right. And as a matter of fact, interestingly enough, if you go back to that period when there were congressional hearings on this, none other than the great Ray Kurzweil was talking about this. Okay. I mean, he'd already published at least one book on the singularity, but he was actually talking about biological warfare to Congress. Okay. But that was only, that was kind of only one side of the issue. The other side of the issue, which I always find, I, I find personally more interesting and in a way, even maybe a little more controversial is the idea of extending people's longevity so they don't have to retire so early and become a drain in the medical system, okay? <laughs> no, so in other words, this was a way to get around what people had been noticing already starting in the 1970s as the so-called fiscal crisis of the welfare state, right? Because what the welfare state was basically originally designed when people's life expectancies were like 65 years old, right? In other words, you wouldn't be living too much longer, right, after, uh, you know, after you were eligible to retire. You'd, like, die after a couple of years. And when they wouldn't have to be paying out pension. was introduced in the U.S. Uh, in the 1900s, the average life expectancy was 48. Yes, right? exactly. So you'd right. be dead for 20 years before you actually were able to collect a check from yeah. the government. Exactly the point. Exactly the point. But, of course, life expectancy, you know, even without transhumanism has gone up very high, Okay. Um, and, and so, and, and not only that, of course, there was this concern that although people are living longer, they're not necessarily living healthier, more productive lives, okay? So they are, in a sense, a drain on the medical system that way, okay? Um, and so you just, you know, and, and you just don't see this problem disappearing by itself, 
okay? Because people are living longer. They're not necessarily living healthier. Some people are, some people aren't. And it's enough of a, of a financial problem. So what you basically want to do, ideally, is to have adequate grounds for actually raising the retirement age and, and keeping people more productive for a longer period of time. And so, you know, even if you're looking for relatively modest gains, you know, so that you're able to have people be productive realistically for another five to 10 years and you could raise the retirement age to maybe up to 75 even, uh, that would save an enormous amount of money. Okay, just doing that. And that's relatively modest from a kind of transhumanist point of view. But from the standpoint of balancing the budget, right, this would be brilliant. And so from the European Union side, this was the big deal, right? That it was, is there some way we can kind of, um, you know, we can kind of expedite the development of research in things like, let's say, gene therapy, right? The kind of, actually, some of the stuff that Aubrey de Grey goes on about. Right, this idea of regenerating cells, and so you you know you age at a slower rate, or you maybe be able to reverse the aging process, you know. But the idea isn't Aubrey de Grey's idea, which is basically he thinks we'd be on holiday forever, but rather it would be to keep you in the workplace longer, right? So the idea would be to raise the retirement age. Yes. You see, now I find that see, and 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 I and you know, as someone who has a lot of sympathy for the welfare state, I thought, wow, that's really smart. Now you see, the interesting thing, of course, is that transhumanists don't normally think about the issue this way. But this is the reason why states are interested in this. Yeah. You see, and this is, how I, this is how I got into the topic in a very substantive kind of way and start to begin reading the literature. Because it was really around, you know, 2005, 2006, that you really start to see a kind of critical mass and consolidation of all the transhumanist stuff on the table. Uh, and, and, and let me tell you, again, uh, you know, you, it'd be interesting to hear what you, what you have to say in terms of, what you, what you might think of as the, the critical moment for transhumanism. But I always see it uh, in terms of uh, the response of the extropians to the George W. Bush bioethics panel in 2005, okay? Because uh, that, was the, uh, that was the panel uh, that basically uh, uh, recommended a federal ban on stem cell research, yeah. right? Uh, the Leon Cass Committee, uh, which had people like, Francis Fukuyama on it, and Michael Sandel, and, and a lot of religious people on it as well. Fukuyama it's called all, transhumanism the most dangerous idea in the world. That, 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 that's right, that's right. And he was one of the first to say it, too. So give, I give him a little credit for that. He was, uh, he was already saying that like 2002 or 2003, you know, before hardly anyone heard of transhumanism. Uh, but the thing is that um, it was in response to that that all of these so-called extropians from that magazine, Extropy, Extropy, you know, the opposite of entropy, Extropy, right? Um, this is where you get in the same room and in the same document, Aubrey de Grey and Ray Kurzweil and Nick Bostrom and Max Moore. You know, other, in other words, guys who are coming into transhumanism from rather different directions, actually, right? I mean, if you look at these guys, even though we, you know, we quite naturally think about them as transhumanists today, uh, nevertheless, where they're actually coming from intellectually is, is somewhat different, okay? Especially in terms of how they... Go ahead. You throw in David Pierce and a few others. Uh, exactly. Uh, 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 what's the cyborg Buddha guy? Oh, my God. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, James Hughes. James Hughes. How could I forget his name? That's embarrassing. James Hughes, who is a Buddhist. Like It's, it's amazing the diversity of people's backgrounds that you see there. Right. Yes, but the scene, the, the thing that are also and a few others like uh, like PJ, uh, PJ Manny, and a, a bunch of a bunch of others, and and you have a very sort of diverse community. 
But you see, I found that document that they did in response to the bioethics panel extremely illuminating. It was kind of like a, almost like an epiphany because I think what really, and, th and this is where I think George W. Bush did the transhumanist movement a favor because he became the common enemy, right? And you began to get a sense of what are all, what do all, what are all these guys against, right? And it, and it becomes clear when you look at the bioethics panel because what they're against is an excessively precautionary approach the development of science and technology. They're also against people who do, who are who are somehow afraid that science and technology is going to violate something natural about the human being. Right? See, all of that stuff. I mean, it seems to me that that the uh, the Bush bioethics panel, in a way, crystallized the enemy of transhumanism in a way that hadn't been so well crystallized before, especially at a political level. And so that was, and I found that extremely revealing. And that's one of the reasons why one of the key concepts of transhumanism, which I really have held on to and try to develop, is this proactionary principle, right? Because the proactionary principle comes about as the response to the precautionary principle of the Bush bioethics panel. That's where this principle first really gets articulated by Moore in a really strong way. And, and so that opened up, that, that really kind of made, made a lot of sense of things to me. Yeah, why don't you just uh, sort of spell them out and the opposition between the proactionary and the traditionally precautionary principle so that yeah. those who may be unfamiliar with them can sort of get up to date? Okay, well, first of all, uh, the precautionary principle is actually a relatively well-established principle, uh, at least in international law and especially in the European Union. And it's usually uh, invoked in the context of um, innovations relating to... Uh, public health, and the environment. Um, and and it's, uh, if, you, if you want to put the precautionary principle in a nutshell, it's basically the Hippocratic Oath writ large. In other words, above all, do no harm. Yes. Right? So it's, about, it's a risk minimization strategy for innovation, for governance, for policy, whatever. So if there is even a, a small chance that there is going to be some very you know, significant damage, then don't do it. Right. Keep on just doing whatever pilot tests or, you know, something else to, to, to kind of lower the level of risk before you actually introduce stuff into the public. Now, the precautionary principle um, originated, actually, um, it was a principle originally of forestry in the 19, early 19th century. In other words, only cut down as many trees as you can replace. Right. So the kind of worldview uh, that was always behind the precautionary principle was one of a kind of equilibrium, right? A kind of sustainability model, right? Where there's a kind of natural norm that we should be always kind of aspiring to, right? And that is to say, a balance with nature, right? And so the idea of being in balance with nature is very much part of the metaphysics that informs the precautionary viewpoint. And so it's not surprising that it's been very central to a lot of the ecological environmental thinking. Okay. Right. That comes on the heels of the huge deforestation that's been happening sort of from the 14th to the 18th century to yes. all those fleets, both for wars and, and also for the new world discoveries and for commerce and all that, which happened all throughout Europe, especially in England, but also continental Europe. So that's yes, that, that's out of that. That's, that's exactly right. And, and, uh, and so this is... So, so there's a kind of, you know, you can get a sense of what the mentality is here. It's one, uh, you know, the, the, the key aspect of it is, well, two things. One is minimizing risk, okay? Uh, and the second thing is also 
this idea of a natural order, a natural norm, right? And then if you violate nature, nature's going to bite you back, right? Um, and so one, you know, so if you look at more extreme, you know, some of the more extreme kind of predictions that we get, right? Um, so you, 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 you and your listeners may be familiar with the Gaia hypothesis. Yeah. The Gaia hypothesis is the idea that the Earth is one big organism, right? It's a self-maintaining, self-sustaining organism. And from that standpoint, right, human beings may just turn out to be a pest that over time will be eliminated by this superorganism called Earth. Okay? So um, the other thing I should say about the precautionary principle we are uh, a is virus, that, as Agent Smith. Put. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Or cockroaches. I mean, you know, you can have all kinds of metaphors to use this in terms of how bad we are. Uh, but the point is, there is no special value being placed on the human being here, right? The human being only has value insofar as it can support the rest of nature, right? The value comes from nature, and humans are valuable only insofar as we remain a beneficial part of nature. And, and so the precautionary, and I, I stress this point because it seems to me that this is where transhumanism is really different in its kind of metaphysical conception of things because transhumanism actually puts an enormous amount of faith in the human, right? And, in, and if anything, transhumanists are saying, we're not human enough. We've got to really go full speed. We're holding ourselves back. We could be doing a lot more in terms of transforming our bodies and transforming our worlds, you know, and creating the whole cosmos in the image and likeness of humanity. I mean, it seems to me this is kind of a very transhumanist way of looking at things. And you see, that's the, that's the enemy of the precautionary principle, because the precautionary principle doesn't privilege the human. Okay? I mean, it only privileges the human as one of among many life forms. Okay, so the precautionary principle is... The proactionary principle is, well, I mean, I, I have sometimes talked about it in a very flippant kind of way uh, as a, basically a no pain, no gain principle, right? In other words, if you want to make big leaps and big progress, you got to take big risks. So in this respect, um, I would say the proactionary principle sort of sees the world a bit like the way entrepreneurs see things, right? In other words, every kind of risk is not a threat, but an opportunity. Right. And so the idea is you've got to explore all the opportunities that are out there. So you've got to do the risky experiments. You know, you, you, you've got to you know, you've got to do all this crazy stuff in a way. Some of it will fail. A lot of it may fail. But there is a general kind of faith that we will be able to overcome it, that we are resilient. Right. And that we will just carry forward. And the evidence for that is, of course, human history, because human history you know, is, is this incredible thing from the standpoint of success and failure, right? I mean, we have this ama all this amazing progress in science and technology over the last 250, 300 years, but, you know, we have the Industrial Revolution, but now we have the climate change crisis, we have all the greatest science in the world from in the physical sciences and the biological sciences, but then we get two world wars, right? I mean, you know, all of this stuff goes together, right? They, they all seem to be happening together. Um, and, and I think the attitude of the proactionary principle in all this is to say, well, yes, that's kind of how it goes, right? That in a sense, if you want to make the big leaps, right, the, the big progress, then you've got to kind of expect, right, at a certain level, right, that things might not always go to plan. And so you cannot be so fixated on avoiding harm. Now, you see, that's a very strong way of putting the proactionary principle. And I should say that most transhumanists sort of skirt around this a little bit. In other words, most transhumanists 
um, don't quite want to talk about what it means to say when you say we're risk takers. Well, risk takers means you fail a lot of time, just like entrepreneurs fail, right? Most, what is it, 85, 90% of all, you know, startup businesses fail, right? And then people just carry on, okay? Uh, and, I, and I think that, the, but, the, but it seems to me that's a radically different way of looking uh, at the world and looking at human beings from the precautionary principle. Yeah, and, and also different transhumanists have different degrees of tolerance of risk. So that's kind of like a very sort of personal line to demarcate where, you know, risk begins and, and too much risk begins and where it's kind of like uh, acceptable. But let me let me go back. But let, me, let, me, let me just point out something sure. here. If you look sure. at somebody like Elon Musk, okay, look at Elon Musk. Right, right. That guy's like the most pro-actionary guy in the cosmos, right? Today I was reading in the newspaper he wants to – he wants to send nukes to Mars in order to make it habitable. Okay, now you you know you might say this guy's nuts, but the point is, this seems to me part. It is within one, and, and this is where I think transhumanists, you know, in a way, have to kind of see that the logic of the ideas do do kind of tend to push you in this way, right? And if you look at you know if you look at the prehistory of transhumanism, let's say through the Italian futurists or the Russian cosmists and all these guys, these guys had some pretty radical, far-out views of how much human beings ought to be pushing themselves. Right. So so I'm going to come back to both okay, of those. Okay, okay. But, but, and, and the roots, because the etymology of, of transhumanism is important here. But, yes, but yes. But let me just get a few more sort of personal details out here in the open that, that I think may be pertinent to a different degree. So let me just ask you straight up, are you considering yourself a transhumanist? I would say... Uh, Yes, of a, yes, of a sort. I mean, um, uh, certainly I'm not a post-humanist, um, <laughs> you know, so no, because for me, that distinction does see in a way that for me, the distinction between transhumanism and post-humanism is like the distinction between proactionary and precautionary. Very good. Hold on to that. Well, okay. That's part of okay. the conversation. Okay. Very important part, but, but hold on to that. So okay. before we get to the, to the actual meat of the matter and, and the definitions and the nitty gritty, you know, so so you are a transhumanist, but one interesting thing is that you have a sort of a Jesuit training in education, if I'm correct. Is that true? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So tell me yes, a little so. bit about that, because I I think those may be connected, or at least some people oh, yes. think they're connected. Yes. How well, did look, that I mean, happen? Uh, was that in high school? Where, where was that, and and what kind of impact did it have? Well, look, I'm a, I'm a, a, I okay. So I come from a relatively poor background, so I'm a product of a scholarship in terms of having gone through schools, and, um, and so I was. Did you go I, to I was, a Jesuit I, high school, or exactly, exactly through scholarship. I went to a Regis High School in New York City, which is uh, one of the in terms of you know entrance examination scores and stuff. It's always been in the top five in the United States. It's a uh, yeah. It's it's actually uh, it's a very interesting kind of Jesuit school because. Um, it's not. It's while it is run by Jesuits, it is actually classified as a, a private independent school because it's in the will of the benefactor. It's not part of the church that that makes this a Jesuit school. It was a request on the part of the uh, of, of the rich guy who benefacted the school that the Jesuits should run it. So what that means is that there is there is actually quite a the school has a larger percentage of lay teachers, right? Uh, you know, non priests as well as lots of Jesuits. Now, I went to school in the 1970s, okay? So we're talking about the late 1970s here. 
Um, and and uh, this was the period where the Jesuits were very much associated uh, with liberation theology, right? This kind of hybrid of, you know, part of the, again, I don't want to go through the whole history of the Catholic Church during this period, but but some Especially people may the know Latin that... American Jesuit wing sort of was like pushing that and, and exactly. killed and it was, in many countries. Yes, that's right. Uh, and, and it was a part of a general kind of liberalization that the Catholic Church was undergoing during that time as a result of the Vatican II Council. Uh, I don't want to have to go into that in too much detail, but but it was a liberal period for the Catholic Church generally. And, it, and, and one of the people who was uh, discussed... Um, among my uh, Jesuit teachers, sometimes in somewhat uh, guarded tones, was Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Okay, uh, so uh, just for people in your audience who don't know who he was, um, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin was a Jesuit priest. He was also a paleontologist, and he was part of the expedition that in the 1920s went uh, and uh, kind of made sense of what, what we now call Peking Man, okay, this kind of ancestor of human beings from about a half a million years ago. And he was part of that. So he was a real serious scientist, as well as being a Jesuit. And he wrote a lot of books. Uh, and these books were banned by the Catholic Church because he was arguing a kind of transhumanist line, basically. The okay? Omega Point. Uh, he coined the Omega Point? That's right. He's the Omega Point. That's right. That's right. Uh, and um, the doctrine the doctrine is, uh, if you read P, uh, and Teilhard de Chardin's books, um, started to be, it was possible to, to buy them and read them generally uh, after he died uh, in the mid-1950s. And so they started to get translated into English. And among the people who were promoting his work in English were not just, you know, left-wing Jesuits like my teachers, uh, but also people like Julian Huxley, the man who coined the term transhumanism, and Theod Theodosius Dobzhansky, who's one of the founders of the modern evolutionary synthesis, who happened to be a Ukrainian Orthodox Christian as well. And so these guys were, in fact, writing introductions to uh, Teilhard de Chardin's books. Okay, The Phenomenon of Man, for example, uh, which is probably his major, his major work. Um, and again, for people who've never looked at Teilhard de Chardin's work, um, it, it is quite, it's, it's a bit weird. Uh, because what it is, is a combination of... Um, well, so imagine, imagine you have somebody who is basically trying to interpret the Bible, but using science as a way of trying to make sense of like what Jesus is saying and other things that are happening in the Old and New Testament, and then putting that within a kind of cosmic evolutionary framework, where basically the idea is that the entire cosmos is evolving into God, and we, the humans, are kind of the brain of this. Okay, so we are kind of the brain of this kind of cosmic evolutionary process. So we're the ones directing it. Um, and, and Teilhard de Chardin was someone who understood this in a very robust kind of way. Um, so not just is he talking, so he's also, he is talking about um, a kind of emergent collective intelligence, what he called the noosphere, right? N-O-O-S-P-H-E-R-E, -E, um, which is this kind of emerging collective intelligence that he said uh, would be very much, uh, in a way, he, he sounded to my, my ears and my mind in the 1970s, very much like Marshall McLuhan about the global village, right? He was thinking kind of all of the uh, rise in, 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 in global telecommunications was going to create this prospect of a kind of collective intelligence, you know, and so some people think he anticipated the internet and all that, okay? But, but in a way, that's not so important. What's important, though, is that he thought that this was part of the way in which you know, human beings would kind of 
evolve in a kind of self-directed manner. So it wouldn't be just... Or maybe not, not so self-directed, but as kind of fulfilling a teleological yes. path towards God, right? Because yes, ex ex except that it's destined. It's not exactly self-directed, but it's like predestined from our conception to our sort of omega point fulfillment. Yes, ex ex except except that I don't. I think he was quite open, uh, quite open-minded. Uh, you might say as to what exactly form this final thing would take. So what you don't get in Teilhard de Chardin uh, is, is, is um, you know, a really, you know, so he doesn't read the Bible in the way that, that he somehow thinks that there are passages in the Bible that tell you what the, what it's all going to look like once the plan is over. Right. I mean, so it isn't reading it that way. Rather he's, he's kind of reading it more in a prophetic mode about pointing in different direct, in a direction. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, so, but the point, the other point I want to make is, it, it wasn't just at this kind of collective spiritual level. He did talk about the kinds of stuff that you know Julian Huxley and Dobjansky and other people would be talking about as eugenics, right? So he was talking about the shaping of the biological, of the material part of this and as well. Julian it wasn't Roger just, Aldous also spoke about that. Well, no, exactly. And Aldous Huxley <laughs> and Brave New World is a satire on Julian Huxley. Right, I mean that's one way to read. That's if you the want to read anything to do, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean th this is the thing. I mean, uh, one one of the things when I when I teach about transhumanism to undergraduates, um, I, I invoke uh, Brave New World uh, because most of the students in Britain will have read Brave New World as high school students. It's part of the required curriculum, um, and uh, even though the book was written in 1932, um, nevertheless, uh, I ask the students to read it. Because I want to see whether they whether they find it quite as satirical uh, as Aldous Huxley meant it. In other words, you know, if so, so, so for Aldous Huxley's audience, um, you know, people would say, "Wow, this whole idea that you could have kind of an assembly line approach for manufacturing human beings as if they were baked products," and you know, a lot of the stuff uh, that that is very much part of the of the fabric of Brave New World. Um, I think nowadays a lot of uh, a lot of younger people don't actually see it as, as so um, satirical. They say, well, you know, there's something there that, that might, you know, that's not so different from the world we live in. What's so funny about that, right? We live in this world, yeah. you know? And, uh, you know, I, and so that's why I, I, I do find it, I think the response of students today to something like Aldous Huxley is not quite as you would expect, right? Because, and, and to, this, to this extent, I would say that the younger people are already kind of living in the transhumanist imaginary because they actually think something like Brave New World might be kind of good. Okay, so you, you you mentioned David Pierce earlier. I could see David Pierce right out of Brave New World with his attitudes towards suffering and all that, right? Right, the hedonistic imperative. Exactly, exactly. That's Bra Soma City, right? Soma and Brave New World, yeah. right? That's not meant to be satirical. That's meant to be a serious philosophical position. Yeah, well, we'll come, we'll come back <laughs> a little bit later because I have a question from him. For sure. You, but, but I oh, you do. Oh, you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. But but I wanted to bring in this kind of uh, origin, uh, sort of of, mm. of of your background, if you will, because I it, I believe it would all come together a little bit later on with the cosmists and and the other ideas that we're going to talk about. So okay, so you went into a Jesuit school. So then I have to ask you straight up. Then, are you a Christian? Because that kind of 
has pertinence to our conversation in terms of yeah. our own presuppositions, backgrounds, beliefs, biases, etc. Uh, I look well. First of all, since I was trained by the Jesuits, you know, even saying I'm a Christian already opens up a lot of questions because the Jesuits themselves have always had a kind of um, problematic relationship, should we say, right? Because they have a very kind of flexible notion of Christianity. They were on the edge for a thousand years. Yes, exactly. And I'm sort of I'm sort of in that camp. And I do think it's important to say that. Um, and, and again, I, again, a lot depends. One reason why I'm always reluctant to just say I'm a Christian is because that kind of can, can uh, give people the wrong impression if they have certain kind of stereotype views of what Christians are and, and, and you know, what the bottom line is for being a Christian. So but but, he, but you're absolutely right. That, that Christianity is is very central to the way I think about transhumanism. And so people who have read my work will, ver you know, you can't go a few pages without seeing some theology in there, right? Yeah. And for people who think that transhumanism is some atheistic view, right, they could be totally confused, right? Because, um, but my, my the, the connection to Christianity, I think, is, is, is the one that I would begin with. And I think that all transhumanists, or people sympathetic to transhumanism need to take seriously, it is that it is through Christianity, especially, but more generally through the Abrahamic religions, so Judaism and Islam, that we get this privileged view of human beings in the cosmos. And of course, in Christianity, there it's is an special. enormous amount of yes, exactly. And 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 especially after Saint Augustine, we start to get a very strong emphasis in Christianity uh, in. The idea that humans are created in the image and likeness of God, which of course appears in Genesis, but a lot of things happen in Genesis. And Augustine, you know, in the fourth century AD, one of the great founding fathers of the church, he, he put a lot of emphasis on that, right? And he said that this was a very defining thing about human beings. Um, and it seems to me that if you don't hold on to that view, then I don't see how you can be a trans... You, you need that view for transhumanism. You need a kind of privileged view of the human as your start-off point from which then you're going to say all the stuff that humans do are going to somehow launch us into the cosmos. Otherwise, it just seems crazy. You see, this is the thing I think trans... See, and, and a lot of people do think transhumanism is crazy, right? I mean, uh, and, and I think a lot has to do with the fact that if you're not a transhumanist, you have to ask, where is the intuition? for transhumanism coming from? Why can't people just ex accept that they're only going to live X number of years and do things in normal ways, et cetera, et cetera? Why do they have to have this kind of grandiose view of human beings living forever and conquering the cosmos and all this kind of stuff? And I'm saying that it comes from this. It comes from this theological vision of human beings as having a privileged place by virtue of our relationship to God. That is, I think, really important. And it's been secularized, right? Obviously, it's been secularized. And the Enlightenment, of course, is a very instrumental part of that historical development because the Enlightenment is really where the secularization happens, okay? And so instead of talking about our soul, we start talking about reason, right? Reason becomes the thing with a capital R, and this is the thing that humans have. You see, and transhumanism is basically the air to this whole development in history. Excellent. So, so now is the time to start moving into, into the definitions and the matter. But before we talk about transhumanism, before we talk about trans anything, we have to talk <laughs> about that and that something. What is that something human. that we're going the to human. going trans, you know, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So what, okay. is, what is human, first of all? Because we okay. can't have transhuman without human. So I, I've asked this yes, question right. right. of times. What is human? Okay, okay. Yes, I have given this enormous amount of thought. Uh, and in fact, the first book I wrote on, on um, transhumanism broadly, Humanity 2.0, in a way, I, I, I really begin to think about this. And I've thought about this a, a lot more since then. So the first point I would make about human is that human is primarily a normative term, not a descriptive term, okay? So in other words, um, it isn't, uh, when we talk about human, we're not necessarily, we're, we're not, it's neither sufficient nor necessary, I think, to, to, to imagine that we're talking about an upright ape, okay? <laughs> no, no, because I think this is really important because um, human if you go back and you look at the way in which the con the concept of human and the idea of being human, right, and 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 somehow becoming human through education primarily, that was historically the way by which people became human, right? It's like being civilized. Human is a, is is in a way kind of a synonym for civilized, I think, or cultured, right? I think that's kind of the way you got to look at it, right? And so that in some sense, the presupposition was, um, you know, from the ancient Greeks, let's say, we you know, let's start with them for the sake of argument, um, that you got an animal right? You got an animal that has a capacity to be human, right? But the capacity is it, you know, the capacity has to be trained up. You got to teach someone how to be human, basically, right? That was kind of what the Greeks thought. And, and, and of course, one of the big issues from a political standpoint that's been very thorny over this history is which of these, you know, animals is eligible to be educated to become a human, right? And so the issue about gender and race and all this stuff, in a way, is very much part of that discussion, right? And within the context of ancient Greece, even when they're talking about who is eligible for this kind of humanizing process, it's quite clear it's going to be certain kinds of males who are typically able to afford to do it. Okay, uh, they could pay, they could pay Plato, you know, or something like this. Right, um, but on the other hand, Plato was very open to the idea that slaves had the same capacity as free. They have the same capacity, of course, and Th that's even right. too, by the way. And, yes, and because Plato was a wrestler, actually himself, uh, mm -hmm. he even thought that women had the same capacity for even for wrestling. So that's right. That but I think there was. But look, there was even an open question among the Greeks about whether what kinds of animals had the capacity for being human. Okay, so if you know, and 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 I always like to point this out to people because uh, because you 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 see an enormous amount of this literature in 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 in. Greek world, especially, um, that actually seems to make very substantive um, hum human-like claims about animals. Okay, about animals being. I mean, and 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 you could say, oh, that's just anthropomorphism. That's just metaphor. Well, see, I think that that what we're doing there is we're reading a very modern perspective into those guys, right? Because we have a kind of view now, starting, let's say, I would say from the middle of the 18th century onward where we start to identify those beings that are eligible to be human have to be upright apes, right? Linnaeus, as soon as you get homo sapiens, right? As, the, as, as a kind of biological, a very specific kind of biological marker for the human, right? Even though Linnaeus himself is a creationist, so he's not committed to evolution, but he is committed to the idea of fixing the human on the very particular animal species. Because of course, the Greeks, the Romans, the Christians, they all believed the humans were a kind of animal, 
but they're very vague about what kind of animal we're talking about here, right? You're not, you don't get in Thomas Aquinas' discussion of apes, okay? You know, so, so, so the thing here is it's only in the mid-18th century that we start to zoom in on this idea that there is one biological species that is eligible for being human. And then, of course, evolution takes up the argument in the 19th century and carries it on to the present day. And it's in the context of evolutionary theory that then you get this term anthropomorphism that then gets used to talk about people in the past who talked about other animal species as potentially human. Okay? So the word anthropomorphism is actually a coinage um, of, of George Romaine's, one of Darwin's students in the late 19th century, and then it gets applied to all these other attempts, you know, by people in, in, in other cultures to say that animals have human characteristics. But my point to you is, it was an open question until the mid-18th century which animal species were eligible for being human, because human was primarily a normative characteristic. It was the fulfillment of some kind of capacity that you could be trained in. And as you know, right, even in the 18th century, people were having all kinds of discussions about, you know, training apes to talk and training animals to do all kinds of human-like things, right? Serious people were talking this way, right? Because what that shows you is that the concept of the human wasn't specifically tied to a particular species, right? It was this kind of, you know, free-floating set of qualities that all kinds of beings in principle could, could have. So one more thing I would say, you may know that in the Renaissance in particular, you start to get this discussion of the possibility of life on other planets, right? That there are, that, that there are other worlds, you know, especially when you start to get Giordano Bruno and you start to get this, this blasting open of the Aristotelian universe and people start to think there's an infinite universe with infinite stars and there's infinite earths and all these things, right? Very much part of the kind of post-Giordano Bruno thing, which is becomes part of the metaphysics of modern physics. Um, and, and so a lot of people are writing about uh, beings on other planets. They don't look, and they draw them. They don't look like apes, right? They look more like Martians from science fiction stories, right? So in other words, they don't have any kind of clear sort of physiological relationship to us because being human, right, being our equal wasn't necessarily so closely tied to that. You see, now the reason why I'm saying all this, okay, I'm going on at such length, is because now move to transhumanism. And part okay, of the, one of the, before we do that jump, so, so okay. what's, just for to being succinct and clear, do we have a definition of what it is human before we it's get... It's not a thing. A, a human is a set of qualities, right, which has, you know, and, and they're all these very positive qualities. So qualities like, you know, consciousness, intelligence, rationality, right? Communicability, right? Comprehensive thinking, all of these things. Yes. All of these things are part of, of what it is to be human. But then the question becomes, what kinds of beings can actually manifest these things and how do they manifest them? Okay. Um, and I think this question becomes really important for transhumanism because transhumanism takes very seriously the idea that artificial intelligence, for example, could count as human beings or at least as persons, right? That in some sense, they could be one of our equals. And, and you see, for me, that shouldn't be so surprising from the standpoint of the history of human as a concept, because the, his, the concept of human has, has never been tied so specifically to a particular biological species. So then we should be quite open-minded in principle as the, in, ter, in terms of the kinds of beings that might be eligible to be human. 
Mm-hmm. And this is where transhumanism, I think, is actually on the right track there. Right. So for me uh, here, the, the way I usually like to put it is that being human is, is not an entity, but rather it's a process. It's a process of sort of constant becoming and constant redefinition of yeah. every new generation in every new epoch where each and every member of that generation has to rediscover and redefine for themselves the meaning of being human. Therefore, it's just this kind of process rather than a single entity. One, one, one other thing I would add to that, I agree, of course, um, but the other thing I would add uh, is that, uh, and this is where the collective dimension comes in. Um, in a sense, you have to be recognized as human. And this is why I find something, uh, you know, something like the Turing test uh, I, I actually take that very seriously. You know, uh, I mean, obviously, if we wanted to come up with a kind of Turing test to determine human versus non-human, it's obviously a very complicated thing. Though there are people working on it, uh, and and um, I could I, I can send you the name of of someone who actually I think you should be talking to on this matter because there are people who are trying to, as it were, have a kind of cross-species sort of Turing test thing that you know where you know because if part of what we want to say about being a human is to have a certain kind of level of intelligence that allows for autonomy, self-determination, all those wonderful things. Um, we have to make sure that when we are interrogating the candidates, as it were, to see whether they have it, that we're actually communicating with them at the right level to be able to understand what they're saying. Right. And obviously this is going to be different depending on the, you know, whether we talk to an animal or a machine or whatever. Um, and I think this is, this is the interesting and challenging question, right? That if we are operating with a very, um, how should we say, substrate neutral, right? If to, to use this term uh, yeah. from cognitive science, right? So substratum being the material stuff out of which things are made. And, it, and within cognitive science, it is, you know, quite normal for people to believe that, that minds, you know, mind, a mind can exist in many different substrate, right? So it could exist in a carbon-based substrate like animals, like us, Right, or it could exist in a silicon-based substrate, and then the question becomes: um, you know, if you want to say both of these things have minds, then how do you need to address them in a way that this becomes evident? Right, and it seems to me the Turing test is very sensitive to this kind of point, and this is necessary, I think, when we're going to judge candidates for humanity in the future as we start to get this much more expansive notion that transhumanists invites us to have. Yeah, and and for me, I have sort of the Socratic test of of intelligence or even artificial intelligence, if you will, and that's simply kind of stemming from the Socratic dialectical method of investigation, but also from a thing that Pablo Picasso said, which was computers are very dumb. They can only give you answers, but humans give you really interesting questions, right? So for me, the Socratic test for AI or for intelligence in general is not the answers that you're able to produce, but the type of questions that you're able to ask. And so that's the first thing that that I would ask a, a potential AI in a, in a sort of a semi, in a sort of a quasi-Turing test would be not only that watch the answers that it or they are giving to my questions, but also ask him, okay, what kind of questions do you have for me? What are you interested in yourself? Yeah, but uh, well, if I may say, I, I I see where I see where you're coming from, and I do have sympathy with it. Um, but I do think, I mean, the uh, but I think, in a sense, the spirit of the Turing test 
because uh, the way you've described the issue is that you already know this thing's an AI, right? Uh, and and uh, right, and so you were then asking whether this AI actually meets some level of being human, but that's not really how the Turing test works. The Turing test works. I, I get that. You don't, you don't know what the thing is. You don't know what the th you don't know whether it is human or AI, and you've got to guess, right? Yeah. And 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 the question I have to you then is: a lot of human beings can't give you questions back. Okay, a lot of human beings. That's why I said that this is also the test for intelligence, not just artificial intelligence. I know, but the point is, no, but I see, I, I, I'm, right. I'm raising so, a So when I talk to, to, to somebody else, I'm, I'm not only interested into the answer. When we have a good conversation with somebody, I'm not just interested in the answers they're giving me, but actually I'm more interested in the kind of questions they're going to ask, right? That's, that's like the real high level for me. dark side of this kind of preference I have for the Turing test mm -hmm. is that if you're sufficiently substrate neutral, then in a sense, you're not going to be privileging carbon anymore. Right. Uh, and yeah, right. Uh, and, and I do think, and I do think this is something, this is going to be, I think, part of the, you might say the, uh, the future politics of transhumanism. Um, because as we are, as we become more liberal in principle, in allowing beings that come with from different substrate to count as humans what is going to happen to the people you know who the who are are thought to be human simply because they are homo sapiens even if they right. do not pass these kinds of advanced sophisticated sort of tests which i think we will end up going toward to be honest with you so i i think the kind of thing you're talking about is kind of where we're going but i do think this does have some very interesting and potentially uh well, how should we say, controversial implications for carbon-based human beings. Absolutely. So we'll get to the implications. <laughs> Let's first lay down the, 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 the sort of the groundwork in terms of definition. So we spent time on being human and, and the sort of the difficulty that, that mm -hmm. historically for thousands of years we have and we still don't have a simple definition, let alone a biological one, about what it actually means to be a human. Right, and, and the interesting thing is, by the way, that uh, uh, I interviewed Professor Hiroshi Inshiguro from the University of Osaka, who is the, the sort of the father of the Geminoid line of robots, and he told me that the reasons why the reason why he is making Geminoid robots is because he's trying to figure out what it means to be human, and and the, after he's been doing that obviously for 25 or 30 years and i asked him okay so what's the conclusion that you've reached after decades of doing this work and he's the best that he could master in response was well actually the definition is changing <laughs> yeah yeah so now do you do you, do you remember um, uh, norbert wiener's final book golem inc right cuz he's he actually talks about uh uh, you know the the design of cybernetic systems very much in this kind of light, like this Japanese guy did, uh, namely that the reason why you do make these systems is to figure out what it is to be human, and he compares it with the biblical project, blasphemous biblical project of of creating a golem, right? Where you know out of clay, stone, we would say silicon. Now you try to create a human just like God created humans. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so enough about the, the human part. Okay, so where does the trans come and what does it mean? And then, of course, we're going to have to go one step up in the post, 
because you make a very important distinction there, which I think escapes and it's very different than perhaps the popular understanding of the post-human. So let's talk about first the transhuman. What is it? Okay, well, so the transhuman, uh, first of all, it starts with the human uh, and it says basically um, we need to be more human. So, the, so what I mean by that is that if you think about the things that distinguish human beings the most from other animals, from other things. It's typically those qualities that, the, uh, that are the ones that transhumanists want to amplify, okay? And one of the reasons why I think, you know, transhumanists tend to be quite liberal, and in fact, there is this phrase which I think is quite important in transhumanism, morphological freedom, morphological freedom. You have the right to be in whatever form you want to be, basically, right? If you want to upload your mind to a machine, God bless you, you can do that. If you want to live forever in your own body, you can do that, right? So there's this kind of very ontologically tolerant position, okay? And that's because um, transhumanists believe that the qualities that make us human are the ones that make us different from everything else. And so what you're trying to do is amplify that by whatever means it takes, right? If you can do it within your biological body, that's fine, but you don't need to be in your biological body. You could go, you know, into cyberspace or something, right? So the point here is that that um, your basic, the trans is basically an amplification of the human because that's what's good about us. What's good about us is not that we are living, not that we are biological, right? That That is not actually what's good about us. What's good about us is the distinctive bits, the things that make us different from everything else that is living or biological or whatever. That, that that's where tra- that that's where transhumanism has this connection with the theological view, and that's exactly where sort of you have to start with this presupposition that we have this kind of a privileged, unique position, perhaps yes. in the at least on our planet, but also perhaps in the cosmos. That's correct. Yes, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, I always thought um, Ray Kurzweil. Um, you know, who in many ways is, is one of the real founders of, of this kind of, he really got the measure of this very early on when, you know, he's writing books like The Age of Spiritual Machines, right? And then this, uh, this uh, journalist in, in the San Francisco area, Eric Davis, wrote this book, Technosis, right? Technosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, which, you know, again, for people who know something about theology know that Gnosis, Gnosticism, was a kind of heresy within Christianity which basically said that what was wrong with the human condition, the reason why we were fallen was we, we were stuck in our bodies, right? And that, in se- that, that if, you know, we escape our bodies, right, in some sense, let yet to be determined, um, we will, in fact, uh, leave our fallen state and be able to reunite with God, right? And, 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 the, and the world, you know, and we'll all live happily ever after, right? But the problem is just being stuck in our bodies, right? So it's a very... So and, and transhumanism, I do really think, has this, and certainly that is the allure of the very idea of uploading your mind into a machine, right? Because as you you probably know from people you've spoken to, there are a lot of people who think the very idea of uploading your mind into a machine, even if you can do it, is crazy. Yeah. Right. But obviously, it's not. You you need to have a certain kind of view of the human being to think it's not crazy, and it is one that has, I think, a certain, perhaps even quite strong. Gnostic, Gnostic dimension to it, where in some sense your body as it is is kind of the problem, right? It's kind of in a, in a way it represents the problem you have to get get beyond. Like you don't live long enough. Like you're not smart enough, right? I mean, there's a sense in which we have to self transcend, 
Um, and, and that is very crucial, I think, to the transhumanist imaginary. Right. And so let me ask you this r right here then about this kind of, a, of an attack that usually happens, because let's say we recognize these kind of theological origins of, of transhumanism and the sort of the presupposition of, of, of the, the homo sapiens unique space uh, place in the cosmos. Now then, basically, the, the charge comes is that transhumanism is religion for geeks. Right, it's well, a new, a new, a new Christianity. It's at its core, as you said, an, an, a new Abrahamic religion, uh, a religion where the path to transcendence is just a technological path. You well, know, and it promises well, the same thing: eternal life, you know, salvation. But it's kind of like a biological, if you will, salvation, in, at least in some of the versions, and so on, and therefore. That's uh, the grounds for dismissal of it, especially if you come sort of from a scientific slash especially atheistic background and people would say, well, this is kind of a new religion, but it's it's just one of many sort of new scientific religions, you know. What, what well, first of all, that well, part? there's, well, look, first point is uh, there's truth to this. I mean, I mean, it, you know, truth to it in the sense that you know, and I mentioned this earlier when we were discussing about scientism, right? That transhumanism is scientistic. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, and I think it is true. And I think, and again, this is where I think transhumanists sometimes aren't straight with themselves or straight with others about what they are. And, and, and so they shouldn't be surprised by the kind of thing you just said, right? That people say against transhumanists, because it is true, I think, uh, that transhumanism is a kind of, um, you know what? What you might call materialist theology, right? I mean, and 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 it's not the. I'm, and and so when people ask me, you know, from the theological standpoint, you know, I, you know, other than the sort of things I've just mentioned now, what would be precursors to transhumanism? Um, I would point to if you look at the in the nineteenth century, cosmism, especially. Well, cosmism, yes. Okay, and we could talk about that separately. But I want to raise a couple of other things which people don't normally associate with trans transhumanism, but do have elements of it, or at least in terms of the the orientation. Okay, the nineteenth century was uh, w in, in the United States was very full of 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 what were called metaphysical religions, and these metaphysical re religions they were often very closely associated with the transcendentalist movement of. Emerson, you know, Thoreau, these kinds of people from New England. Um, and, and, and they had certain kind of characteristics to them. Uh, one of them was that they basically believed that you could use science to channel your divine powers. Okay? And so even something like the Christian science movement, which is very much against using medicine, nevertheless very much believed in willpower and mind control. Right. And, 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 and they actually had a very scientific way of thinking about this. Right. That in some sense, Jesus was teaching us a certain kind of meditation or mental discipline or something. Right. That that science, you know, would reinforce. And then on the other end, you had something like Mormonism. OK. The Church of the Latter Day Saints, which basically has invested enormous amounts of money in biomedical research in the United States. In fact, they may be, I think, in terms of private investment may in fact be the largest investors in because they have hospitals and universities and everything all over the place and they are fixated on the idea of the resurrection of the body okay right because the, the mormons interpret the new testament and, and a, as a kind of materialism basically right as a materialism right all the and and, and cosmism 
has this characteristic as well, right? That all the dead are going to get raised, literally, right? So it's going to be one big cryonics festival, basically. <laughs> That's kind of what the Mormons are. No, no, this is where the cryonics stuff comes from, right? I mean, it's it's, it's very, and, and the point is, this is very continuous. Once in, in, in the 19th century, once you start to get very kind of, secularized materialist versions of the United States as the promised land, okay, and that this is where the second coming is going to happen, right, and we've got to prepare ourselves for, for it with our modern techniques, okay, this, it seems to me, sets you up very much in the direction of transhumanism, okay, uh, and, and so I don't see really a break at all. I think where the break comes in is with more traditional, conventional church-based religions, but in terms of all of these kind of splintering off of Christianity that you start to see in, in the 19th century, um, you know, it seems to me it's quite continuous with what transhumanism ends up doing. So, so I, I, uh, this is what I always tell, you know, my, my, my religious friends. I, I, I say, you look at the do doctrines of these people, like the Mormons and so forth. These are proto-transhumanist doctrines, come on. Right. Yeah, I mean, I you know, here the president of uh, the Mormon Transhumanist Association twice, Lincoln Cannon. Uh, yes. And other other figures like that. Um, actually, uh, another Christian transhumanist was uh, uh, Frank J. Tipler, who basically told me straight up that that uh, the Omega point or the singularity is coming for sure. But I was skeptical about it because uh, he understood quantum mechanics and I didn't. Uh, and, and yeah, no, no, I, I, I know Frank. I, I've met him, and uh, he is a very interesting guy. I'll tell you, he's a very interesting guy, really against the grain, but a person who, again, I would say, I would put him in this kind of category of people I was just talking about, right? Someone who has a very strongly biblically-based version of Christianity. I don't know if, you, if you've read any of his book, The Physics of Immortality and all this kind of stuff. He, he's quoting the Bible. He's like Teilhard de Chardin. He, he writes exactly like that. Oh, except the physics is a science rather than 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 paleontology, but 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 Tipler is exactly the same way, um, and, and and you know, and my view about this is, is this wrong? Is there something wrong? With, I mean, it's it's a little strange from the standpoint of the conventions, of of how religion and science are supposed to mix together. I realize that. I realize it's unconventional, right? But 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 intellectually, it seems to me. You know, it has a certain kind of compelling character to it. And given that we're talking about theories, especially in physics, which are pretty speculative no matter how you look at it, okay? Come on, guys. String theory? Really? You know, don't tell, you know, you, you got a problem with God? I got a problem with string theory. You know, and, 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 and so the point is that given that we're dealing with a realm of science that is already open to a wide range of speculation, you know, which contemplates all kinds of very weird ontologies. The fact that someone is talking about God and the singularity seems to me just part of the mix in that regard, that people shouldn't be so scandalized by that, right? And so, <laughs> no, really. But really. the point is that the original question that I had is the point is that it's, it's kind of detrimental to the sort of reputation of both the transhumanism and the singularity as ideas, given that the charges that they're just another new religion that's like for geeks and and therefore well, religion dismisses as just all the other fake religions that have no See? historical truth to them uh, of any kind look what, what look what i cannot solve is the problem that people have with religion okay in other words i think that there was an enormous amount of licensed bigotry against religion 
among intelli uh, uh, intellectuals, okay? Uh, and I, I don't know how to deal with that. And that's a general problem. That's not just a problem that transhumanists have, okay? But I mean, intellectuals would give you a history of inquisition and suppression of science and knowledge and, and, and burning people on the stake and all kinds of stuff like that for the... Yeah, and I'll give you World War II any day. Sorry? World War II was caused by science. <laughs> world War One was certainly caused by science. Come on. We got two world wars where science has caused more damage than any Inquisition ever caused. Give me a break. You can't play that game. You're not going to win it. Science is so much more powerful. So how is it that science caused World War One and World War Two? Well, because in terms of the amount of damage it did, okay? And also that the fact that... instrumental, but not like... It wasn't instrumental. In fact, people believe they could win the war because they had the superior science. This is certainly true on the German side in World War One, yes. and I think it was true on the American side in World War Two. Yes, and, and even okay. during the Cold War too was yes, exactly a, a race no, no, and the and science. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's where the Cold War, in a way, uh, is uh, it's very interesting and 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 in a way very morally instructive because we didn't get World War Three that the science actually managed to curb itself. Right, that you that I think with with the Cold War, uh, primarily through the introduction of game theory, actually, uh, that you start to get a kind of self reflection that that got built into the science, so that the science didn't just you know get derailed and end up causing destruction. So uh, you know, so in this regard, I'm sort of on the same page as, as, as Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker always likes to bring out the Cold War as a great example of how we're making moral progress, right? Because we were able to kind of curb ourselves. And, and I do think there was something we just lucky because there were so many occasions where we were so close and we were simply lucky because the world was about to end several times during first during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where an American destroyer was trying to sink a Russian submarine which had nuclear weapons and authorization to use them. Uh, then there was like the fake alarms in the 80s where was his name Petrov, Vasily Petrov or something like that, who had like, I don't know, six minutes to basically sound the alarm of impending American nuclear attack, which was kind of a fake alarm. And so many other cases where if things, if people actually followed the manual, we'd all be dead now. <laughs> sure. But the point was, I think, I do think that people were sufficiently aware. And this is where I do think game theory and stuff like that as part of the Cold War imaginary was very important. Because what, it, what, what I think people in the Cold War had, which I think in the, in the two world wars wasn't so clear, was there was a kind of self-consciousness of all of the mistakes we might make, right? Because game theory laid out all the possibilities. What are the optimal outcomes, suboptimal outcomes, right? Uh, and I think people, that was really registering in people. And I really do think that led to a certain kind of curbing maybe i'm being too idealistic about this but i don't think it's an accident right that, 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 I, I tend to disagree with you on that i don't think that the captain of that russian submarine or vasily petrov were maybe even not familiar with game theory they were just thinking about what if i'm wrong what if i launch this nuclear armed torpedo right now that the americans don't know about or what if this radar which tells me the earning warning system that tells me that of incoming american missiles is wrong and we launch and they haven't launched well, no, but, but look but, but part of game theory is also to know what the probabilities are of things being wrong right so in other words if you are if you are operating on the assumption that you know the instruments that you're using aren't always going to be right and you have to factor that into your judgment and then you look at the potential damage that could be done if you make the judgment wrong 
right? All of that is a game theoretic way of balancing stuff. Sure. And, and I'm just saying that 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 this really becomes self-conscious because it becomes highly theorized and people get trained in this stuff starting in the 1950s and 60s. I don't think that's a trivial point. Yeah, I don't think the Russian submarine captains were, were trained in game theory, but yeah, I get Okay, it. maybe not. I, I don't want to push it too far. No, I'm not going to say everybody learned, you know, everybody knows game theory when they're five years old or something. No. Yeah. So okay. That would be a nice idea. The Soviets probably would go around saying that. We train our people. They know game theory. <laughs> well, okay. So we, we talked about the human and the transhuman. Uh, let's move on to the post-human here because time is advancing. So, Okay. So where does the post come in? So we talked about the trance. Where is the post? And how is it different from the trance? Because okay. there's this popular perception that the post is simply a continuation of the trance, but you draw a distinction there, very clear distinction. So talk us, uh, talk us through that. Okay. The different, okay, so the simple difference is that transhuman, right, basically is like ultra-human, wants to take what is distinctive about the human and amplify it. Whereas post-human wants to decenter the human. In other words, part of the post-humanist imaginary, especially as it's articulated uh, in a, a lot of the, I would say in a lot of the kind of cultural studies side of, 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 of all of this, uh, which is a lot of the academic literature that is on post-humanism coming from people like Donna Haraway and people of that kind, um, they basically believe that the human is in a sense the source of the problems, okay? That the post that that uh, and and so the the, the posthuman imaginary is 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 very much fixated. I I would say these days on this thing called the Anthropocene. Okay, it's about so dethroning the, dethroning. So basically, here's a charge, and you tell me if I get this right. The charge is that the Enlightenment and transhumanism basically killed God and installed ourselves on His throne as the center of the universe, as the measure of everything around us. That's right. The ultimate destiny and the decision maker and the giver of life and death, the end of the beginning of everything. And then the post-humanism in this interpretation that you're pushing forward is basically the dethroning of the, the decentralization, if you will, the removal of humanity of that throne and bringing it back to sort of an animist perspective, if you will, where yes. we are kind of in the same level playing field that's right. All the other living organisms. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like a return to animism in a way, if you will. Yes, that's right. Yes. And that's why, uh, you know, people uh, people like to, they tend to, post-humanists tend to speak, I would say, nostalgically, let's put it that way, about pre-modern worlds and other cultures, right? Because, because it is true that this kind of fixation on the human uh, is very much a kind of Abrahamic thing. And of course, the Abrahamic cultures are a minority of the world's cultures. Most cultures are not an, uh, Abrahamic. Uh, and most cultures, it is true, most cultures think about humans at the same level as they think about other forms of life. I think that would be more the norm on planet Earth, right? In terms of the cultural norm, it is actually closer to a kind of post-humanist perspective. Yeah. So all of that Hinduism, is true. Hinduism, Shintoism, they're all kind of like exactly. of that. Exactly, exactly. And I, and I do sometimes think that um, part of the problem that the West has, let's say, uh, in trying to come to terms with a culture like China has to do with a failure to appreciate this. 
Um, you know, but that's another discussion to be had about about the, the geopolitical implications of this, given that the parts of the world that are now really emerging and coming on the scene are are not part part of the Abrahamic culture, right? I mean, so 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 you know, we're we're getting a kind of a shift in the balance of power that is moving away from an Abrahamic center of gravity, and so not surprising. Uh, not surprisingly, a lot of the characteristic Abrahamic political doctrines, like the human rights doctrine, is now under incredible pressure. Okay, uh, and and but but again, that's probably uh, another kind of discussion. But yes. I, I think the the point about about the posthumanist is I, I would I would even go so far as to say that it is that it even what well, it is decentering from an ontological standpoint, very much in the way you described. Uh, but I do think there's a kind of moral judgment being made as well about human beings as they have conducted themselves up to this point. Absolutely. Okay, uh, you know, and that basically we have done a really bad job, uh, and 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 that in fact, um, rather than just carrying on with science and technology, uh, we need to roll back, scale back, uh, and this is where this image of the Anthropocene that I mentioned earlier uh, is a really pivotal notion, I think, for the posthumanists these days. So this is the idea that since, let's say, the Industrial Revolution, end of the 18th century, right, um, where, where you start to get a sharp spike in the carbon emissions that does not go down but just keeps on going up, um, that this is the point where humans, for the first time in geological time, right, a single species, the human, uh, is actually primarily responsible for climate change as it happens, okay? And this is why it's called the Anthropocene. Um, and, um, so what you end up getting, if you take this view seriously, and this is the kind of thing that gets invoked when one says we only have 50 years or something to, uh, lower our carbon emissions, otherwise, you know, the planet is going to, you know, it's going to somehow go into meltdown and we're going to lose several billion people and half the species will be gone and all of this kind of stuff. Not half, more like 95% actually. That's right. That's right. No, no, that's exactly right. And I think the post-humanists take this very seriously. They take it as a damning indictment of, of human beings. Um, and, and in fact, uh, the uh, and, and the point is that this is not going to be solved by more science and technology. OK. Uh, and in fact, they find it quite uh, damning, insulting. I don't know what almost blasphemous that you get a lot of transhumanists like, you know, guys like Elon Musk. But this is also true of the cosmos from the 19th century onward, thinking that the cosmos, humans belong in the cosmos, right? So, so in a sense, the earth is just the cradle, right? The earth is just the beginning. And, and so, you know, the point is don't fixate on it so much, right? That would be one way to read the kind of climate change problem. You know, so in other words, you could be somebody like Elon Musk as a transhumanist, and you could say, okay, yeah, you know, the planet might, you know, might go into meltdown in 50 years time. But then look, we've got the rest of the cosmos to play around with, right? And we can go up there and we can make a new start. We can make a new start and learn from our mistakes and have a kind of new experiment in the human condition. Multiple experiments because we can colonize all over the place. And, and so post-humanists find this incredibly insulting to nature, even blasphemous, right? That, 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 that transhumanists have this kind of hubris, right, of, of, of thinking, Hell, we could leave the Earth. We could go into the cosmos. No problem. You see, so I do think there's a kind of moral judgment here that's also being made. Absolutely. And and I have to put forward my personal biases uh, and, and sort of my personal journey here. 
because I very much started as a transhumanist. Uh, and now I find myself kind of at the edge between what you describe as post-humanism and transhumanism. Uh, and, and one of the things, and, and you know, I don't, sh I don't share either of those views completely. So I'm kind of like in the border and with one foot here and one foot there. And let me just give you my version of, of what like really annoys me with some transhumanists, for example, is that the idea is like, okay, we're going to exterminate 95% of all the species. And the answer is, ah, don't worry. You know, we're going to de-extinct them. Yeah. Exactly. George Church. Yeah. So we can do whatever the heck we want. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. And you tell me, because you're a sociologist, if, if yeah. my counter argument is making any sense to you. Take the, the woolly mammoth, for example, right? The idea is, look, we're going to go get some DNA, which, by the way, people have no idea how complicated that is and how you know unclean or contaminated that DNA is. Because when you find the sample after you know so many thousands of years, you have to actually do a number of actual guesses of like what's the DNA of the woolly mammoth and what's the DNA of like an organism that was eating that and, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, let's say you even get that right 100%, which is unlikely, but let's say you do. And let's say you have 100% the full genome of the woolly mammoth, which is, as I said, unlikely, but let's say you do that. You then take an embryo of a woolly mammoth and you implant it into an elephant to give birth to that woolly mammoth. And then that elephant gives birth to a woolly mammoth. And people say, look, we brought the woolly mammoth back. And my answer to that is bullshit. That baby mammoth has absolutely nothing to do and is never going to be a mammoth. Why? Because it's not only the genes that carry the woolly mammothness, if you will, but it's actually the whole culture of being a woolly mammoth, which involves being uh, uh, giving birth by a woolly mammoth family, family growing up and being taught the, the sort of the woolly mammoth way, way, if you will. So there's a whole culture and structure. And we know the elephants are so smart and they have their own culture and they take care of their dead and they even mourn and all those things, right? And so you can genetically give birth to them but they're never going to be the woolly mammoth of history. They're just going to be a, a, a woolly mammoth-looking elephant, which was born in a zoo. Just like, you know, once you take an animal, an, ele, uh, an animal out of the wild and you, and, uh, or, or if it's born in a zoo, then you can't like release them in a the wild because they can't fend for themselves. And that's particularly true of smart animals like the mammals, like orca whales, dolphins or apes, right? If they didn't grow up in a sort of a family of apes in the Congo or something, and they were never socialized in what actually being ape means and how to survive in the world as an ape or as an orca or as a dolphin, being born in a zoo and being genetically an ape is not necessarily being the actual ape as those real apes are in the wild. So that's my counter argument. And to me, people who say, oh, we'll just de-extinct them, they grossly underplay the importance of the sociological part of being a certain species, right? Because it's not true. just about the genes. Yep, uh, this is certainly true. Uh, but 
as you were just describing, right, this problem in a way begins much earlier on than with the issue of de-extinction, right? This are, you know, the way you've described it, the problem already begins by having animals being born in zoos, okay? And, and we've been doing that for, you know, a few hundred years now. Uh, and, and so I'm just kind of wondering whether you're, you're sort of, in a way, you're complaining about something much more than you think you are. Right. So, so, so in other words, you're, you, you know, you're, no, right. So you're not just complaining about the extinction. You're, you're sort of complaining maybe even about domestication. Right. I mean, you, you know, that, that, that in a sense, you are making a kind of absolute defense of wildness. Right. That, that in many ways. Yes. You got that right. Because I've been vegan now for four years. Oh, uh -huh, okay. And okay. so absolutely that kind of goes with sort of my ideological journey, if you will. Right. So, so yes, and, and that's in keeping, and that's where the normative sort of judgment comes in, in, in that, that you kind of so well identified in sort of post-humanism, right? Uh, and so yeah. that's why I sympathize with transhumanism in so many ways, and yet I tend to not underplay the damage that we have done so far, as, as I believe in so many cases transhumanists do. Okay, let me let me ask you just one other question about this. So let's say I'm def let's say I defend the, the extinction, right? Um, sure. And I and I've heard your argument. Um, I think part of what informs the sort of mentality that would do the extinction isn't simply, though I know it does sound like they're trying to resurrect dead species, and in a sense we could have all the species that have ever lived all over again, kind of thing. I know it it does sound a bit like that's what they're saying. But I do think that from a biological standpoint, though, um, one of the things that we have to grant, and you, I think you, you would need to grant this too, uh, is that um, animals are not static, okay? Sure. Right? I, I, so so th there's a sense in which, um, you know, even during the period that the woolly mammoth lived, right, it didn't remain constant. I mean, it was, because, so, so in other words, the different circumstances under which different woolly mammoths, you know, were, were brought into the world over the millions of years they were around, sure. right, uh, they changed. They were different, right? Of and, course. And, 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 have you know, subspecies in Canada and North America. Exactly. Yeah, uh, sure. And they all have their own cultures and all this stuff that you were just describing. Of course. Now, now, from that standpoint, okay, so now from that standpoint, if we accept that as kind of a basic fact about the way evolution works, yeah. um, then de what de-extinction, in a way, de-extinction perhaps is falsely advertising itself as somehow resurrecting dead species. Precisely my it's, point. Okay, but instead of what it's, do what it's doing, it's, it's bringing into the world new species. Exactly. But it's not the only. Right. So, so. No, no, but is there a problem with that? Is there a problem? My point is, is there, is there a problem with that if that's what they're doing? Well, the problem with that is there to the extent that you're claiming you're bringing back the old species, right? Okay, so but, the, but the point is you really I'm never can bring back the old species. If really mammoth into the 21st century, then fine. You can make that claim, and then we can debate whether that's a worthwhile task to accomplish. But if you say, oh, I'm going to bring the, the passenger pigeon, or I'm going to bring, bring the, the woolly mammoth, you can't because it. The, the, you need a whole herd of woolly mammoths that train. Yeah, yeah I know. Whole sociology that comes with that. But it may be. It may be uh, that again. You know, again, we're talking a bit in the future here because I don't think our our DNA analysis of this stuff is quite so great yet. Uh, but it may be that 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 some aspects of the DNA of let's say the woolly mammoth um, are, are are have certain kind of properties that if we could reproduce. Okay, uh, in some hybrid creature, 
would be worth uh, use would be worth having now. Okay, uh, and so in a sense, what we will have done is we will have brought back to life a creature that is that has a substantial overlap of the DNA of the woolly mammoth, especially in the distinctive parts, but would be a different species. Okay, sure. and you uh, can make that argument, yeah. Okay, would, would you have an objection to it? That's my point. Would you no. object to it? Well, if I, that were the if that were the, the not grounds for it, one. I don't have okay, a, okay. Obje objection. It will be sort of more of a on a case by case basis, mm -hmm. right? What's the cost benefit analysis, particularly to expend resources? Okay, okay, okay. No, right. no, no. That's that's good to know because it. it, it uh, but but I, I do think you you have brought up an interesting point about the the way in which the false advertising of this, uh, you know, ends up really. Kind of making, making maybe maybe making a moral making the moral situation worse than it really is. But that's precisely <laughs> one of my big concerns: is that you know we or not? I don't want to say we, but many transhumanists have because I don't count myself in that group. But they have this kind of laissez-faire attitude that yes. basically we have a blank check. We yeah. can simply take a DNA sample, kill all living members of a particular species, and you know in yeah. some vague part in, of the future, of our glorious future, the gods that we would become would generously give back life to those animals who are not around only because of our own folly. And so first, that's problematic at least on two levels. First, that's not true, you know, factually, because that species would be extinct for me, based on the argument I made. But, but secondly, uh, that kind of do, done at a large enough macro scale can bring on about our own demise because we kind of fail to understand how we fit within that hope and how codependent we are on those other species. And if we fail to reach godhood early enough, uh, but we extinct all the other species, we may actually fail to reach our transhuman potential precisely because we are so blindly uh, arrogant in destroying the world around us, you know, all the species on which we depend. Yes, yes. I, I, yeah, I could, I could see that. I mean, I think that it's at this point that transhuman, this is when the transhumanist argument for uh, having multiple paths moving simultaneously, you know, so in other words, we got the people taking care of the earth, you know, along the lines that you're talking about, but then we might have the Elon Musks and all his friends, right, taking a, a you know, a handful of, of, of DNA Right and 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 traveling around on spaceships and and setting up new colonies where in a sense the ecosystem becomes radically different and so whatever codependencies that these humans of the future will have it will be a radically different one that we will to a large extent constructed from scratch right, right. because you, you right and, and so the point here is that transhumanists you know this is why transhumanists sometimes talk about speciation right that the humans will become different species. Some will be very much codependent in the way you're talking about with the situation on Earth, and, and they will remain pretty much homo sapiens. But then there'll be all these other species floating around and doing different things in different places. And transhumanism takes a liberal attitude on that. Right, but here's the problem with that too. So I'm I'm for and against, and, and so the devil is in the detail. So here's the problem. So first of all, Elon is greatly overselling it, okay? So, so <laughs> saying that... that, that uh, uh, well, uh, colonizing Mars is a solution of overpopulation on our planet is utterly ridiculous. <laughs> like anyone who knows about the costs of sending here one or two people to Mars, you know. Let alone one or two billion. <laughs> billions of people. 
you know that that that's utterly ridiculous statement saying that it's it's a solution to overpopulation. Ah, he's going to tell you economies of scale. <laughs> right, right. So, right. It, it costs a lot that it costs a lot to t bring up one or two to Mars, but once you got that figured out, one or two billion easy. I don't think the works <laughs> in favor. So, so that's one problem with my, with Elon. Secondly, how it's done, I think it could be done, and I'm all for that. So, for some adventurers like Elon to go there, right? And and so we can give them certain support, but also they need to grant certain kind of taxation to us so for ah. example if you're elon musk you cannot simply fly away and take away all your your money with your your wealth or leave it here as an investment on earth once you decide to go on that colony we need to do something like i think a 50 percent tax rate or something like that and have some kind of an arrangement with you because you have to acknowledge in some kind of material way the the debt that Earth has given to you in terms of the possibility and the chance to explore Mars. And so, provided we meet those conditions, I'm totally okay for letting adventurers like Elon Musk go and populate the universe as long as they don't oversell that to the general population and as long as they meet certain conditions about not sort of destroying or, or taking away all their wealth with them. Right. Well, they look, I mean, I, I think you're going to get that wish. If he ever does you know, really try to colonize the cosmos. Um, I, I think you will get that wish because as far as I know, Bitcoin only works on Earth, okay? So the point is there's going to have to be some kind of financial arrangement still with Earth insofar as Earth will have the only banking system, at least for a while, that, that this will be an opportunity for you to to set up some kind of negotiated settlement. Because I can't, I, I, what would it mean for Elon Musk to take all his wealth to Mars? What, well, where, what, would, what do you do with it? Well, you can't do anything with it. if it's in Bitcoin, you can take it with you even in death, supposedly, right? Because it's a it's. But a, what do you do? But what do you do with it? This is the point. What do you do with it on Mars? Well, you invest it in the new colony with new settlers or whatever. You create a new economy, and and you know you need capital to so he's be, to start. Right, so he better industry. put. He's going to need to bring some bankers on a spaceship then. Okay, because so far the banks, the banking systems on Earth. I'm no, I mean, and all the, all the, you know, the Bitcoin stuff is happening on Earth too. I mean, but I'm just saying it's a practical need, point. You don't need bankers. You need computers. You just, you basically need a decentralized uh, system that that uh, share that is the backbone of that shared trust. But who is he trading with? Who is Elon Musk trading with when he moves to Mars? Well, right. This are, is the point. Sure, those are all good questions, and it's not going to happen, you know, uh, at once. Just like when the Europeans came to the New World, you know, in the beginning there were a few outposts, and it was hard to trade and all that stuff. But eventually, it picked up, right? Oh no, you're right. But the point is, I, I I'm just saying, I'm agreeing with you. I actually think that he will be forced into the kind of discussion that you want to have about his wealth, because he's not going to be able to just start up a whole new banking system from scratch and take all his wealth there and do something with it. Right. How's that going to happen? He would have still investments in his, you know, Tesla factories or, or battery factories or what may he have you at, uh, still here when he flies over there. So anyway, but we're running out of time. So let's let's get. Uh, OK, <laughs> so, so That's right. we covered a lot of stuff here. So let me just ask you quickly and, and maybe we have 20 some minutes here. Um, I'll keep you maybe a little bit longer, but uh, what what are the greatest? Let me just ask you this: If we 
take the macro view, we zoom back out, what are the greatest issues that humanity is facing in this 21st century? Because well, Elon Musk has a very particular view, right? According to Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Steve Wozniak, maybe Bill Gates, even the, the late Dr. Stephen Hawking, they all said that AI is that... No, that's not the problem. <laughs> that's for oh. sure not the problem. Yeah. Okay, so so what is the problem according to Steve Fuller then? And why, why is not AI the big problem? Uh, well... Let me tell you what I think the real problem is. The, the, the big problem is going to be the issue that we've been talking about throughout this discussion, and that is the definition and value of humanity. Okay? So in other words, I do see, first of all, that this distinction between the trans and post-humanists is going to have greater and greater salience in the political arena. Um, and that's going to boil down to the extent to which uh, we really do value human beings and what it is that we value about them. And I think there's a lot of questions that are already being opened up about this. And so one of the things that we've only kind of skirted around, which I think is, is part of this discussion, is the value of humans vis-a-vis -vis other animals. And, as you, and, and, and part of the uh, you know, environmental movement and the animal rights movement, right, which is very much, broadly speaking, part of this kind of post-humanist trajectory, um, really are, um, I don't want to say uh, that they are... Uh, anti-human i think that might be a little bit strong I but agree. i do think but i do think that there are a lot of people especially uh i would say of the younger generation who in a sense if you look at what their primary modes of affiliation are you know in other words what what is it that you relate to the most right it seems to me you got two kinds of answers that are on horizon which which are really quite different from each other um one of them is animals right and nature and that they relate to that right more than they do other human beings that's one thing uh, and the other thing, of course, is the whole cyberspace thing, okay, uh, that, that people relate to stuff happening online. Uh, and they're not really too fussed about whether the uh, originators of the stuff happening online are human or not human or whatever, right, as long as they get some kind of meaningful interaction out of it, okay? And, and it seems to me that these two things are, are you know, as, as kind of ways in which people are spending their time, affiliating, establishing their identities and stuff like that. Uh, they are really challenging a very core, a, a kind of a coherent sense of what it is to be a human being, okay? Because I don't think we could take for granted anymore, and we're going to be able to take it even less for granted in the future, that people's primary modes of affiliation are with other human beings, okay? And this is a problem. This is a problem. Right. I mean, and, and, and trans and post-humanism are right in the middle of this. I agree with you completely, I have to say, because and that was kind of the original question behind me starting my blog uh, 10 years ago. What is the meaning of being human and how is that being changed? How the question even, and let alone the answer, is being changed in the context of, of all those changes that we're undergoing right now. So that's one thing. Uh, uh, so so I, I agree with you. And, and that's where, uh, again, that distinction you draw is important because many people would be questioning that starting presumption, that teleological presumption about the unique special position that humanity takes on that normative scale with respect yeah. to all yeah. other life. And, and as long as people fail to embrace that starting position, 
they would be against it uh, or, or they would be questioning it and there would be conflict on that level. And, and as I said, I myself kind of struggled. Uh, I, I'm kind of like half and half, if you will. So I don't even know where, where exactly I am because I embrace different elements of each, but, but I struggle with that. And, and you see, the thing is, uh, what, what is really striking to me is that this kind of issue that we're talking about now, I think it is, there is a real generational thing about this because I think young people get it, okay? They get, they, they see, you know, like, for example, their intuitions about human beings are not as secure as they were, let's say, in the post-war era, Okay. Uh, uh, you know, you know, and, and so, and there, and, and in my own classrooms, I have students, some of them are driven toward the environmental movement and to animals and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes you will hear them say some very derogatory things about human beings, you know, like, uh, you know, it'd be better if we, you know, if half the population disappeared or something. I mean, they're not taking any action to do that, but, but, but the fact that this kind of view, uh, can actually get some voicing is kind of interesting. And then there are other people who, you know, again, they're living their entire lives in cyberspace, and they have quite, um, see, this is, by the way, this, in, in talking about this side of the issue, I want to address the artificial intelligence issue, too. Please, because I was going to ask you about that, because you said yeah. it's not the major issue, so. No, it isn't, and I think it's kind of beside the, I mean, to be honest with you, I think this is a, a, a self-created transhumanist bubble. Uh, this fear of artificial intelligence taking over the world. I think it, I mean, you know, for people like Bostrom and, uh, and, and the Future of Humanity Institute, which gets, you know, a lot of money, you know, the Center for Existential Risk, it's Cambridge, right? They get a lot of money from a lot of guilty guys in the IT industry, right, who are worried that they're in fact creating the conditions under which the world's going to end. I mean, I think that's kind of where all this stuff is coming from, right? Um, the reason why I'm not so worried about this is first of all, I don't think it's going to happen quite as fast as people say. I think, I think in a sense, the uh, the, the sense of a possible imminent doom really uh, rides a lot on thinking that uh, the twelve timeline. He exactly. I, I think I it, it presupposes. Nine. Yeah. Well, see, now we should have a human level AI, and by twenty forty five, which is only about twenty six years from now, we should have the singularity. I know. I know. And and I and 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 while I don't. So let me make, make myself clear on this. While I do believe that the direction of travel is that way, I don't believe it will happen so fast. And that is an important point because by not happening so fast, that gives us time to think about it and to deal with it in various ways, right? Uh, and, 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 I wanna, and, and the way I think about this that I think really changes the whole... Off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, soft takeoff. That's a good way of putting it. Um, but I think there, there's that, that one of the consequences of having a soft takeoff um, is that the uh, the distinction that is presupposed in this apocalyptic scenario of us versus them, humans versus AI, I don't think that that's going to apply. Uh, why? Because of cyborganization. I mean, it, it seems to me that that this whole line of apocalyptic thinking really presupposes a kind of really undifferentiated view of humans and AI, right? They're these two radically different things that, that, that in some sense are alien to each other. But of course, what we are increasingly seeing, and this is what I would have thought Stephen Hawking would have figured out, right, is that they're mixing together. I mean, Stephen Hawking was 75% machine when he died. You know, and, and the point is, side organization, <laughs> well, seriously, you know, whose side is he on? I mean, the thing is, uh, cyborganization, right, is in fact getting to be more and more the norm. 
And this makes this raises a different kind of question, which is nevertheless very interesting, and that is the idea of identity. Who do you identify with? So supposing we do get to a situation, let's say 100 years from now, right, uh, where, where there is some runaway AI doing something crazy, it would seem to me that by that time, uh, there would be a, quite a lot of people who will already have become integrated into the kind of AI world in a very material kind of way. They will have been cyborgs. They'll be like those, you know, those, those, those uh, later episodes of Star Trek, right, where the creatures on board are kind of a mix of lots of different things. I mean, I, I do think this is kind of more the world we're heading into, in which case then where's the them and the us in all this? But let me give you a counterexample, and they're very important historical examples here, okay? I hear your point, but I believe if you look at the history of ethnic cleansing, mm. it's every single time it's been fabricated. So, for example, I come from the Eastern Bloc from Bulgaria, and if you look at the wars in, in, in the collapse of Yugoslavia, uh, uh, and, and I read a bunch of books and because that was kind of like my specialty in school, my master's thesis and all of that. Uh, and, and you would have people who lived through the horrors of the war there and, and you would have someone who would tell you something like, I was a, uh, uh, um, uh, he, he's, uh, what, was, what did he say? He said, before the war, I didn't know I'm a Muslim, right? So in Yugoslavia, you had, all kinds of intermixed marriages between Muslims and Christians. No one paid attention who was Croat and who, who was Serb, who was Muslim. You know, you had mixed marriages between Muslims and Serbs and Croats and all of those. And then after the, or when the, the atrocities started happening, suddenly that kind of identity got fabricated. So it was more fabricated than real. And yet uh -huh. did not stop this kind of ethnic cleansing happening. So before the war, people would say, I didn't know I'm a Muslim. And then suddenly I discovered. And same situation happened, by the way, in Rwanda. In Rwanda, the Tutsis and the Hutus were kind of a fabrication of the French colonizer, of the French colonial government. And, and the, the main distinction was not genetic, but rather ones were, were farmers uh, and, and the others were... Uh, 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 herders so so the distinction was uh, one dealt with like farming uh, on uh, tilling the land and the other the other group was basically herding animals that was the main distinction between tutsis and hutus uh, not so much genetic or tribal one right it was more about occupation and then the french kind of artificially created this sort of on the principle of div uh, divide to rule and, and all yeah. that stuff. And yet that was then used, that fabricated identity was so deeply embraced so quickly that it led to this kind of ethnic cleansing. So I don't, I, I get what you're saying, but yet I think that that may be insufficient to prevent uh, that kind of... So you, I, I see. So there is a sense in which when we reach this point where the apocalypse is about to happen, that, that as it were, these older notions of I'm really a human, right, will become more important. Well, no, no, but I'm just saying that the new identities that could, could emerge at that time, which we may not be able to foresee right now, could be divisive enough and polarizing enough to give rise to that kind of level of violence, is what I'm I trying see. to say. And I, I don't see. know I along see. what categories I... Oh, that, I see what you're that, saying. that crevice would emerge, 
But I'm just saying the potential of creating a crevice is there. And, and, and some agent or other exploiting it, creating it artificially and then exploiting it for, for other reasons. Right? But, okay. That, Just like Milosevic did in Yugoslavia, for example. I see. I see. I see. So, yeah. So this is this is going to have to be the thing that Bostrom writes in his next book about superintelligence, right? That you have to bring in a new you have to bring in a new agent, right? This diabolical agent uh, that 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 messes with the situation once it arises. Right. And and my my. But my, it's not quite as elegant as the paperclip stuff. No. <laughs> My candidate for that agent, by the way, is humanity. Hmm. That's my candidate because I think we have still the monopoly of good and evil. And I am a very much of the of the claim that technology is not enough, that especially at the outset, AI, if it even comes to be, would be greatly influenced and impacted by our own narrative. And whether it comes to be in a military context, in a commercial context, or some other context would greatly impact the direction of that, and then that would have certain implications. But anyway, let's go back to, okay. we, we, we have probably a few minutes left, like 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, let me see, uh, where does this book of yours, the latest book that I just finished reading, fit here within this discussion, which is called, by the way, uh, Nietzschean Meditations, Untimely Thoughts at the Dawn of the Transhuman Age. So first of all, when is the book coming out? Sometime, I guess the end of this year. I'm I'm looking through proofs now, so you know it's it's going to be advertised in the Frankfurt Book Fair during the autumn. So mm -hmm. I guess the end of this year. Okay, and and where does this book fit within this conversation then? Okay, um, well, well, let's put it this way. Um, I I think what what this book is about. I mean, and this is one of the reasons why I want I invoke Nietzsche as a kind of a an icon for this. It's about, uh, as it were, what are the existential issues that face a transhumanist if you take these ideas seriously, okay? So I talk about a lot of things in the book that I think transhumanists very often don't want to talk about, and I think we've touched on some of these here. Um, you know, so for example, I put a lot of emphasis on the morphological freedom argument, right? So in other words, um, and, and, the, and morphological freedom is, um, in a way, a, a kind of two-edged sword, with regard to transhumanism, because on the one hand, I see it very much, and I think a lot of the transhumanists would agree on this point, that it's that in a sense it could be seen as very much part of the sort of expansive mentality that's been associated with liberalism in the modern era, right? And where, where liberalism is understood as being released from your origins, right? So it doesn't matter who your parents are, it doesn't matter what race you are, right? I mean, you know, a lot of these things where in the past people were judged by their origins, and this held them back and made it difficult for them to do anything in life other than what their parents did. Okay, right. that gradually the history Biology of liberalism is no longer going to be destiny, right? And 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 neither is class origin, and neither anything that has a kind of origin story built into it. Yeah. Those things have been largely deconstructed during the modern era, and, it, and it's normally seen to be part of liberalization. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so transhumanism, the morphological freedom idea. Um, belongs in this category as well. So, for example, uh, you could perhaps be a human being uh, or an entity could be a human being without having been born a human being. Let's put it that way, right? Uh, so AI is not born a human being, but could qualify to be a human being, right? So this would be, as it were, taking that morphological freedom argument down the path of liberalism 
you know, to the logical conclusion. And I'm very supportive of this kind of idea in the book. But it does, as it were, stretch at the limits of liberalism, okay? Because historically, liberalism um, has presupposed that one of the things about that, that, as it were, first of all, the variation among people isn't that great. And that things like gender differences and race differences and class differences, in some way they balance out, right? That, that people need each other, there are reciprocal relationships between people. And, and, and this justifies a division of labor in society. And, and, and what it does is it, it reinforces a kind of general metaphysical idea of natural equality, because no, no one's self-sufficient. Right. Everyone needs everyone else for something. Okay, I mean, and this has always been part of the liberal mentality. And you see this with John Locke, with Adam Smith, with all these people. And and so this was often called natural equality. Right. So natural equality is not that we all have the same qualities, but rather, in a sense, we're all equally dependent on each other. Almost. It's more like that argument. But you see, if you really take some of the transhumanist imaginaries in a very strong way, you know, like being able to upload your mind and be able to have access to all, you know, to all the knowledge on the internet and all the rest of it. Um, th- then you do get to, and, and some transhumanists do talk this way about living in a self-sufficient world, right? A world, you know, uh, and, and, and this is where all this issue about speciation being tolerated and all of that stuff. And so in that regard, then it really changes the whole look of morphological freedom, okay? Um, and, and, and you end up getting a complete dissolution of the human, right? It just kind of explodes into these many different things, like shrapnel, okay? Um, and I do worry there is this kind of, there is very much this tension within transhumanism, which we will have to come to grips with politically in the not-too-distant future, I think. So that's one issue. The other issue that is big in the book that we haven't really talked about here because we haven't talked too much about the biological side of transhumanism, namely this issue about pushing longevity forever. And the way I talk about it in the book, which is very, you know, very much uncharacteristic of the way transhumanists normally talk about this, is I don't presuppose that just because you 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 can live forever, if you can, that you should live forever, okay? So in other words, uh, the, the final chapter of the book is called death as a lifestyle choice in transhumanism. And so with the book... Right. Go so ahead. I, I have I have had this argument with some notable transhumanists, uh, more recently, lastly, with Gennady Stuliarov II, um, who basically said, uh, death is wrong and, and life is right, and that's it. Right? And that's why we should live forever, basically. And to me, that sounds a very circular argument. Well, sure. Like saying... saying you know, I am the king and you're the subjects. And the reason is because I'm the king and you're the subjects. It's like this kind of circuit yeah. or or I am a rich and you're a poor guy or or like I am smart and you're st- or like any other kind of ridiculous circulars. And to me, you have to bring some kind of outside utility if you were to claim that your argument holds any merit in terms of any value, right? Rather than just having this circularity. So am I like... Do you agree with me or do you disagree? I, I do agree with you on that point. I, I mean, I also think that, that that this fixation on living forever, in a way, I'm afraid, reflects the parochialism of a lot of transhumanism. Because it is transhumanists seem to be under the supposition, and, and, and the, the gentleman you were referring to seems to have this idea, that if you can live forever, who wouldn't want to live forever? Right. right? Whereas, there's, whereas there's absolutely no evidence that most people want to live forever. 
right? So in other words, this would be a hard sell, okay, even if it were possible. But if you really, only, you know, not only that, but but what's the value of living to have no. living to to have it ongoing forever, right? So first of all, like let let's examine this historically. So so let's say you're Hitler. Do I want Hitler to live forever? Clearly, and and I'm sure they would say no, right? So, so unless you could put him in prison forever, right? But then, what's the point? What's the point? Well, because then, oh well, excuse me, I, I, no, no. Again, let me play devil's advocate here. Sure, if sure. You believe, so if you believe that Hitler is like the most awful person in human history, right? It would be good as a kind of symbolic reminder to have that guy there locked up. Right. So you say there, you know, it, you know, in other words, you've got the moment there. Right. You, you you could celebrate the moment. See, we got the worst guy in history and he's locked up forever and we can look at him and see you're the worst guy in history. Right. I actually think given given our attitudes toward Hitler in particular, there could be some, you know, kind of symbolic moral value in keeping that guy around behind bars. Right. Not allowing him to die, not allowing him to die. Right. Right. As, as a sort of like internal, eternal the punishment, if you will. Yes, exactly. I mean, from the Greek mythology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th this right. is the thing. Uh, what, what, who, who is the Prometheus? Is it Prometheus. Prometheus. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but Hercules saves him eventually, right? Hercules goes and breaks the chains, and Prometheus gets free, and and all of that. But but so but so so to me, whether you know it's worth extending something, you have to first show demonstrate some value of that something in its own right and only then you can put the argument yeah. therefore it's worth extending it so so i have to ask as you know as an ethicist with a socratic background okay what is life good for what are you planning to use your life for how are you using it because one of the things that i've noticed is many people have no idea in the transhumanist community and in general how to use your life to their life to begin with and then their argument is like, well, if I have a thousand years instead of a hundred years, I'll figure it out. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> because, because you have to figure it out, you have to actually first start looking for that answer. You have to ask the question. And many people are not asking the question because they give this no, argument. Right. It's like, oh, life is right and death is wrong, period. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you're absolutely right on this point. And, and I, I am a little mystified, especially when you do hear the transhumanists give answers about what, you, what would you do with eternal life. And it sounds like they would just be going on a constant holiday, right? I mean, it's kind of what it looks like. Um, you know, uh, or you, you know, when they start thinking about it a little bit more, it becomes a reason why not to have children. Because all the stuff that in the past you would invest in your children is hopes for things they might do that you could not do in your life. You would now have the time to do them yourself. Right? right. So you don't have to worry about kids as it were fulfilling your dreams or anything like that. You see, so I mean, and so the more they talk about it, the worse it sounds. But let me let me make this even more personal here because we're having such a great conversation. <laughs> what about you? Because I personally am giving this counter argument, but of course, self-servingly, uh, I am if I had the chance, of course, I would self-servingly embrace. In mo not in all situations, but in most situations, uh, extended uh, uh, longevity, right? Where do you stand on that? Would you uh, embrace it? And, and under what conditions you would or you wouldn't uh, embrace it? Well, I mean, I, I have thought about this. And um, first point I would make is that from a sociological standpoint, it is people, the so-called, and maybe... I, I, my guess is you are younger than me, but but the thing is that that we're probably enough in the same 
age group to be called middle youth. Middle youth <laughs> typically, you know, typically males. Um, they are the ones who most want to live forever, right? People who are healthy, right? Uh, who yeah. people who who are like getting, you know, who recognize that they are getting more years on them, and so as it were, society start, you know, they're thinking, okay, society thinking, you know, I'm getting close to the end here and all that, but I feel yeah. I'm just beginning, right? I mean, if you have that kind of attitude toward life, which I have, for example, yeah. um, and you know, um, then then um, the whole idea of having more time, you know makes perfect sense right i mean and so i do think it appeals to a certain kind of person intuitively but only to that kind of person because if you've had a life where you're just doing a lot of awful stuff in terms of your job and all the rest of it you know you just want peace you want out of here you know i mean there are a lot of people who in a sense you know or feel i've done what i can and and, and so let me and i want to so i want to address that part of it in, in terms of me personally you know i've done what i can because I think that there's a sense in which that that's kind of where my thinking focuses on. Now, as someone who uh, whose life, um, you know, is uh, intellectual in the broad sense, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, writing and communicating and like I'm doing here and teaching and all that kind of stuff. Um, as a matter of fact, what you're doing when you're doing that kind of stuff that I do um, is in a sense you're engaged, especially when you're writing, you're engaged in a kind of self-codification. You're self-codified, right? Um, and, and I've always thought about this, uh, you know, and I think a lot of people who do spend their life writing think about them, think what they're doing this way as a kind of preparing a legacy, right? So in other words, you are expecting to die. And part of what you're doing when you're living is laying the groundwork for others to come in the future. And so this is why you actually spend quite a lot of time trying to get your thoughts straight and writing them down, right? And leaving them somewhere where people will read them, right? And have some kind of impact on others, right? You really wouldn't be doing that if you thought you were going to be around forever, constantly communicating yourself, right? Yeah, and Alan's response to that line of reasoning is, I don't want to be immortal through my work. I want to be immortal through not dying. Okay, but this is different for, for me. I'm I'm a kind of open-minded guy on this. Okay, I mean, um, I mean, I actually do feel that I have a lot more to say and and all the rest of it. But I am very well aware because look, I mean, the bottom line is if you spend most of your time writing, you're doing kind of what I'm doing here. I'm in an office all day. I've got the shades down. It's summer, right? I mean. I go running every day and I do a lot of traveling and all that kind of stuff. But most of all that stuff that I'm doing is channeled toward this stuff of doing all this writing, which is just basically preparing a legacy, right? And so there is a sense in which if one wants to be a bit kind of detached about it, about how, how I live my life, right? It is a kind of preparation for death, right? And I think this is true of, of sort of intellectuals more generally. Uh, and, and I don't think you have to even be particularly controversial to be engaged in this kind of mode because the kind of living you're doing is really quite restricted and focused in that way. And and let me bring here the last three or four questions here, but but it, it makes a good transition because I wanted to ask you about the relevance and importance of philosophy in general and ethics in particular. And what you're talking here about brings, of course, what Socrates said in the Apology, I think, uh, where he said that philosophy was basically preparing for death. That's what yeah. philosophy was all about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the book, in, in, in this Nietzschean meditations book, I actually, uh, you know, spend a, 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 a bit of time talking about the Stoics and, you know, I the Stoic the movement. Stoics. Yeah, yeah, because this, the Stoics, I think, got it, right? I mean, I think, in a sense, they got it. 
Um, and, 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 and I would wish that transhumanism kind of adopted this kind of standpoint and then would be able to take a much, a, a much more responsible attitude toward the question of death. Right. We're in a sense, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you've done what you think you can do uh, and you have the choice to live or die, you know, uh, you are, you know, there's nothing compelling you to live. Right. That you have done what you can do. And so a perfect kind of completion to your life would be to take your life in suicide. OK. Um, and, and, and I realize that this is a very taboo subject in the sort of world we're living in now. But I think a large part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, death is involuntary in a sense that, but if you're able to live forever, right, then death automatically becomes voluntary and you could exercise it and it could be seen as the ultimate kind of freedom, right? Because you're basically voluntarily stopping the default position. Right? Also, in you can just do way. what's called deadheading. You can be dead for a couple hundred centuries or a couple thousand years, whatever, and then come back, be brought back with cryonics and stuff like that. But, but, uh, of course, the transhumanists would call us both here old-fashioned deathists because both of us have, have a very kind of a lot more open-ended uh, view yeah. of, of death and the sort of the avoidance of it, whereas they would say under no conditions. And that's like one thing that always kind of has pushed me away a little bit from transhumanists is that they don't see any circumstances in many cases where death would be warranted, whereas I see many circumstances in which I would prefer to be dead or 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 to die for a, for a reason or a cause or what have you uh, in a certain situation, whereas they don't see any kind such possibility. Well, I mean, I do think, um, I mean, one of the things I do talk about in the book about, as it were, systemic advantages of dying, okay, so, you know, that is to say, advantages that don't accrue to you personally, but may accrue to humanity as a whole, um, is uh, this issue about how does radical change happen, right? Radical intellectual, cultural change. And uh, a lot of it has to do with generational change in the very specific sense that you basically have a new, new, new bunch of people coming into being who are not saddled with the memories of the older people, right? The older people all go through life having, you know, and especially in the way the transhumanists are thinking about it, because, right, the, one of the target diseases, perhaps the biggest target disease of, of the transhumanist biomedical imaginary is Alzheimer's, right? We're going to have perfect memories forever, right? We're not going to only live forever. We're going to remember everything. Now, that is a complete nightmare from the standpoint of any kind of radical change, because, in fact, where radical change comes from is the fact that you have a new generation of people who aren't invested. They don't have the old memories. They're not invested in the past in any kind of way. Their understanding of the past is purely through second ter secondary tertiary media, right? So they have their own opportunities because of the mediated way they relate to the past to actually reinterpret the past. And sometimes and as it were- a new point of view, which brings- Exactly. Problems. Yeah, that, that's- Exactly. Yes, I totally agree with you. You know, I love that. Exactly. I totally agree with you because actually forgetting is a source of a very important function. And that actually yes. is true in the personal, uh, at the personal level, because let's say you're in the middle of some kind of a clash or argument and you remember all these things and facts and you want to win and you're angry and this and that. And then 10, 20 years later, you forget the whole thing. You remember it was a big fight, but don't remember what it was all about exactly. And therefore you're able to literally transcend, which I believe transhumanism is exactly about your previous position, your previous biases, your previous 
kind of hang over with that particular outcome or, or point of view, and you're able to transcend it. And that's part of my disappointment with transhumanism in general is that first I got disappointed by many notable transhumanists in personal uh, at the personal level. But even going beyond that, at sort of the philosophical level of my disappointment came at the level where, you know, transhumanism is about this kind of transcending something, right? Whereas I see that many, if not most people, have taken it as an opportunity to simply re-entrench their original starting beliefs. And so if you are libertarian, uh, you're like, oh, Transhumanism is perfect, and now I'm going to be even more hardcore libertarian than I've always been. And the point in life, I think, is to have this journey, which means that you don't get stuck on point A all your life, whether intellectually or physically, but you have this journey which makes you travel away from the starting point of point A, and you transcend your current situation. And that's what transhumanism should be ideally philosophical yes. about. But I agree what with you, you actually observe in the community, at least that's my claim after doing hundreds of conversations on the topic, is that most people fail miserably on that level because they simply use transhumanism to re-entrench their, their libertarian or other kind of ideological points of view with which they started with. And that, to me, that was very disappointing. Do you agree with that observation? Do you I, I do false? agree with that observation, but that just shows that there's a lot of room for improvement in transhumanism. It's, a, it's why I, one of the reasons why I recommend that people actually uh, study the movement and even get involved in the movement is precisely because I do think is, it, is, it remains, even though it's been around now for, for several decades, uh, it remains philosophically primitive. I think that would be fair. Philosophically primitive in the sense that the ideas are really, as you say, you know, they're, they're, they're really either they're borrowed from the views that the transhumanists already had coming into it, or they're not very well developed. And I would say, especially with, you know, so with the ideas of morphological freedom and the idea of living forever, these are two very provocative and, and, and superficially attractive ideas, but they have all kinds of problems attached to them that transhumanists, you know, have, have barely begun to address at all. So, yes, I mean, so I do think it's a work in progress, let's say that, about transhumanism. Right. I, I agree with that, and I don't hold that against transhumanism because we are all work in progress in all philosophies. But but I think it's important to bring that sort of uh, theological or, or epistemological perspective into transhumanism. So first, people are aware of where those ideas come from, and that comes, you know, from cosmism very much. But even before that, as you point in your upcoming book, all the way to the Greeks and so on, if you will, uh, Condor chain in the French Revolution mm. and so on. So very important epistemological basis, but also the philosophical dimension, I think, is is very shallow. Uh, and, and if anything, you can say that philosophically speaking, and, and I wouldn't even call Ayn Rand, you know, philosophically worthy, uh, to, but but the the the, phys the the philosophical streams in transhumanism could be very much sort of libertarian and Ayn Randian, you can say in many cases, and I would say that's a very shallow foundation to 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 build something like transhumanism, and, and there's no worse example, in my opinion, perhaps than the transhumanist wager, um, and and by the way, that kind of conflict that we talked about the under valuing or underappreciation of the theological basis for transhumanism can very well be seen in the transhumanist wager. Yeah, I know. Zoltan 
puts our religion as the greatest enemy, and I'm an atheist, and I'm certainly not exactly a Christian, so uh, you know I, I can give him a lot of leeway there. But but going to the extremes that he goes in terms of wholesale destruction and bombing of all the world's monuments in the end and stuff like that and and sort of install installing this kind of global transhumanist dictatorship for the benefit of all just like all dictatorships of course are always for the benefit of all so like that kind of shows shallow philosophical foundation and understanding of where the epistemology of transhumanism comes from and, and underplays the benefits of, of, of that, those origins. Uh, well, I, I, let me just say, uh, I'm in quite a lot of communication with Sultan and, and I think, um, and, and, and you're right in terms of that particular book, but I think Zoltan himself is a work in progress. So we're, all, we're all a work in progress. Yeah. And I, I'm, yeah, I, so I wouldn't give up hope entirely that that because uh, I, I have uh, he and I have discussed a lot of this theological stuff. Uh, he and I are quite friendly. Um, me and, and him and I, too. Me and him too. But that mm, doesn't mean I I don't disagree with him fundamentally. No, 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 no. But I'm just saying I think he might be able to he might be able to shift on this issue. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Okay, all right. So so Steve, we've been talking for about two hours and fifteen minutes. Let me ask you this: Where can people find more about you and your work? <laughs> Well, I do have a website at the University of Warwick, which has a lot of audio files, you know, of my talks. I give lots of talks all over the place, um, you know, uh, and uh, and also has uh, articles of mine. And, and, and you can see my CV with books. But people can also contact me if they want uh, through my uh, email, s.w.fuller at warwick.ac.uk. Um, and, and, you know, maybe when you post this, you could indicate that because I'm happy to to deal with people who have some questions. I'll link to your website there, okay? Yeah, yeah. And then the most important thing is, and you know, I just want to bring this to a close because I think this is a good point to end our mm. conversation. And I think we have started a conversation that maybe we would have to revisit several times, hopefully in person, because I really enjoyed this. But what's the bottom line? What's the message that perhaps you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this two-hour and 15-minute conversation with Steve Fuller today, whether about transhumanism or in general? Well, I do think the important thing about transhumanism, I think, regardless of where you stand on it, pro or con, is that it is probably the movement at the moment that is really calling into question in a very fundamental way what it is to be a human being. And, and insofar as that question still has meaning to people, then transhumanism is actually a very good way of getting engaged with that matter, uh, because um, transhumanism is a very polarizing kind of philosophy. Some people take to it immediately, they kind of get it and they love it, and other people think it's completely aberrant. Uh, and, and I think the difference, right, will have to do with your intuitions of what you think it is to be a human being, okay? Um, and transhumanism takes very seriously the idea that we are progressive, right? We are progressive creatures. We are creatures, works in progress, as it were. Um, whereas I, and, and, and that is one obvious vision of the human from the Enlightenment, and as I say, it has a theological root. But there are other people who believe that, that in fact, that is not the way we should be thinking about humans. We should be thinking about humans as much more embedded in the world, right? As, as one among many living creatures, and that we have to live with all those creatures, and that we shouldn't be, as it were, raising ourselves above them, 
uh, for any kind of reason, religious or otherwise. Uh, and, and I think the, this is a really important question for people to face if they are interested in what the nature of being a human being is. And so I, I would leave it there, that that would be a good way to get into the whole transhumanist discussion. So ask yourself, what does it mean to be human? That's right. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I would say, I would just add that that's the question that Socrates asked and the Greeks were asking back in the day, 2,500 years ago. Uh, I think it's as pertinent, if not more so today than ever. Uh, and, and I would say I've actually been sort of working on and off and, and I'm kind of like failing to make much progress, but I'm constantly thinking about this, this new book that I'm working on called Rewriting the Human Story why our story determines our future or how our story determines our future. And, and that's precisely many of the ideas here that we discussed today, that the, 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 that narrative that we have, whether teleological or epistemological or metaphysical, has a direct impact on what we're going to produce as ideas of what it means to be human, right? Because the narratives tell us who we are, where we're coming from, and where we're going whether you take the Bible, the Abrahamic religions, or whether you take, you know, the sort of animalistic uh, or, or more decentralized religions like Buddhism and so mm. on, Hinduism. And that would have, and, and so being aware that those narratives actually set the, the space or clear the space within which you can come up with answers to that question is very important. And so if you want to change the, the answers, you have to start by changing the space first, which comes directly from those narratives. So you have to become aware of the narrative, teleological yes. or theological or epistemological or metaphysical or otherwise, or even scientific, if you want to call it that way, uh, you know, cosmological, because those determine the space within which you come up with the range of solutions. And, and that's why I've been kind of struggling with this idea for, for a few years now, but Anyway, our conversation now is giving me more ideas and, and more money. Have you, have you interviewed Yuval Harari? Look, I met Yuval three or four years ago when he was just starting. I met him in person and he promised he would do an interview for, for me. I met him at the University of Toronto. We had a conversation. He signed my book. And then I just dragged my feet for, for six or seven months there was some stuff that was happening so I couldn't focus on that interview at the time and then his star basically he took off like a pop star and and then it's been impossible to get him now uh, ever since uh, so I'm it's very likely that I've I haven't given up completely but it's very likely I missed my chance to to get him for an interview but he but he would be but in terms of your own project yeah he would be a very useful person to have this kind of long form discussion with uh, absolutely and he has had tremendous impact on on my ideas uh, uh so so absolutely i i can i can see that i don't know if i'll be able to get him let alone for such a generous long form discussion like i had with you today because <laughs> like literally one of the most wanted people around the world right now yeah so but anyway steve fuller Thank you very much for being with us today. This was, for me personally, a very enriching conversation. I enjoyed it. Well, it was for me too. It was for me too, and 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 I'm, and I hope the audience uh, will like it as well. Uh, I think it's it was quite interesting. Yeah.
you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 